It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. And no, I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. People from across the country are throwing their support behind a new campaign taking aim at racism and sexism. It's called Make It Awkward, or hashtag Make It Awkward. And it urges people to confront offensive remarks or actions when they see them or hear them. And it all got started after this video was captured in downtown Edmonton. It was taken during a production shoot with uh, Jesse Lipscomb, who you can see sort of there, an actor and producer. He's walking down the street when he was targeted by racist slurs from that dude in the car. And rather than walk away, he walked over to the car and he just calmly confronted the men inside. And he posted the video on social media sites and invited a national conversation on how to end racism. Well, Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson has joined this campaign. Where will it go from here and how is it supposed to empower people to deal with racism? Joining me now from Edmonton, the mayor of Edmonton, Don Ivison. Nice to see you, mayor. Happy to be here. Uh, let's start with that video. Uh, you know, when I saw it last week, I was I was a little surprised um, at, at what I saw and, and the fact that it was from Edmonton. What what did you make of the video? Well, you know, we haven't seen documentation of this kind of awful behavior um, until more recently. And, and, you know, there's competing theories going around. One certainly is that there are more and more cameras everywhere. Uh, Jesse happened to be filming a PSA for the city about the awesome things that are happening with our new arena and a bunch of other revitalization things that are happening and wh- how much he loves living in the city of Edmonton. So it's a very strange irony that uh, these... Um, 
these disappointing individuals drove by in their car and started saying what they said. And other people are equating this a little bit to, you know, uh, the permissibility of saying inappropriate things because mm -hmm. of what's happening in the States right now, which I think, you know, as Canadians, we're reviled by that. And so it is distressing to see. But on the flip side, you know, Jesse has, has shown incredible leadership amplifying this and turning it around into a conversation about the need to call this out for what it is and also address uh, more casual racism and more casual forms of discrimination towards other groups. So, you yeah. know, in the end, it's been a positive thing. Well, we'll, we'll talk about the campaign in a minute. But, uh, you know, I remember, I, I don't know how long ago it was now, when, when my hometown, uh, Winnipeg, was called racist, right, by McLean's Magazine. And, and the mayor, Mayor Bowman, had to, had to really talk about it and make it a conversation and sort of went on the offensive to try and get that stigma erased from Winnipeg. Do you think that Edmonton is racist? And is there anything that, that anything beyond what this campaign is that you can do to combat that? Well, a city is, it doesn't make much sense to talk about a city as being racist or not, because a city is a collection of people who's, who hopefully stand for certain things. And cities increasingly are the places where diverse populations, especially in Canada, we exemplify this, come together to build something better, uh, you know, as a community. And so certainly I think there are pockets of racism. Uh, I think casual racism uh, and inappropriate commentary like that is far more widespread than most people would care to admit. But I, I tell you, I felt really bad for Mayor Bowman sure. when that happened because yeah. I thought, you know what, this is not fair to single out a single Canadian city. This problem exists in every single one of our communities, large and small. And I think that's why we need to address this uh, at, at the local level, but also as a national issue because it's not the Canada we think we are and we need to confront that. So I, I, I know you've had some support both from the Premier. I saw the Prime Minister tweeting about the campaign. Tell us mm -hmm. about what appealed to you about it. And was it Jesse Lipscomb that, that came to you and said, what do you think of this? How, how, did, that, how did that work? Well, I happen to know Jesse a little bit because he's uh, you know, a fantastic community leader and a, a brilliant entrepreneur and an actor and mm -hmm. a creator and a filmmaker. And, and so um, I phoned him, actually, as soon, shortly after I saw the video just to see how he was doing. And, um, and we agreed that we'd get together and see if we could um, turn this into a more positive conversation about the need to call it what it is, racism and bigotry, and, and challenge it, even if it's casual, even if it's just an offhand remark around uh, you know, the locker room or the water cooler, wherever it happens, that we need to challenge that. We need to call it for what it is and, and have a value shift. Um, uh, you know, and this is a hearts and minds thing, so it's, it's easy to do, and we wanted to engage young people who have real moral clarity on these on these questions, because racism and other forms of discrimination are learned behaviors. I don't at all for a minute think people are, are born this way. And, and Jesse and I sort of were finishing each other's sentences and, and thinking about how we we're going to respond to this. But it was actually Jesse's uh, partner, uh, Julia, who uh, uh, came up with the hashtag um, make it awkward based on some social media interaction she was having with people who were supporting her and, and her partner as, as they were going through this. And so the three of us met the next day and and uh, wrote it down and and it went from there and the response from across the country from um, indigenous community leaders disability advocates uh, LGBT community leaders it's just gone so far and wide it's been really great gratifying to see so what, what are you hoping people do with this though I mean do you want people to confront people who are who are being racist to your face and and 
you know, that could lead to all sorts of problems. Do you want them to call it out on social media? How, how do you see this actually working? Well, there's a fine line here, and it's a very Canadian line too. You know, yeah. and I think about the spirit of peacekeeping is in a peaceable way and in a non-confrontational way, but in a constructive way, we need to challenge these things. So if there's someone in the workplace who is who is getting away with saying inappropriate things, posting inappropriate content, whatever, then that needs to be challenged somehow. And if people feel safe to do so and have support around them to do so, start the conversation. It may be an awkward conversation, but... But, you know, uh, so many people have reported to me times when they've done that. Well, you know, when they just say, you know, there's a racist comment in the workplace and someone says, explain that to me. What do you mean by that? Mm. What are you basing that on? And that, you know, people just realize immediately how inappropriate it was that they've repeated something that they heard that they thought was funny because they didn't think about it very hard. And as soon as you're challenged with a bit of awkwardness to think about it, then there's an opportunity to change the conversation. And that's really the social change that, uh, that needs to happen here over time is to call this behavior out, whether it's overt and ugly like what we saw in the video or whether it's casual and everyday or systemic, frankly, if there are other barriers that people are facing uh, that limit their full participation in community life. We have to have some awkward conversations about that. Uh, that's a good thing. Have you ever done that? I mean, you know, you're in a leadership position. You're also white, though, so you're not encountering these these instances that often. Have you ever been at a table with a bunch of people and said, "Yo, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like what you guys are saying here. What is this about?" I have, uh, and um, it's it's hard to do. But if you're in a room with people who are otherwise, you know, thoughtful and respectable individuals who are just don't realize that this is not acceptable and need to be challenged, then, you know, it can make a difference. Mm. Um, and, you know, I certainly come from a position of privilege in our community as, a, as a, you know, a male of European descent. And I've come to recognize that more and more with the work that I do with vulnerable communities uh, here in Edmonton. Um, but Jesse and I both are fathers of mixed families. Mm. And so w both of us are thinking about the experiences our kids will have who are sort of you know, racially, and at that, that word's outmoded, but sort of in terms of their, their, their appearance, it's mm -hmm. sort of hard to pin down what they are. Yeah. And um, so certainly we don't want any of our kids or anyone else's kids, regardless of what they look like, regardless of their ability, regardless of their gender uh, expression or sexual identity, to have to experience this kind of nonsense, not in this day and age. So, but clearly we still have work to do. Yeah, and, and you're starting a conversation, which is sometimes how these things get going. So the hashtag is Make It Awkward, and, and we'll check back and, and see if there's anything concrete that happens from it. Uh, Mayor, I appreciate your time today. Well, we're meeting this week to build the campaign from here, and there's allies from across the country, okay. so we'll definitely check back in with Sounds you. good. Thanks, Don Iveson. Pleasure. A group of Black Lives Matter protesters shut down an airport today, not here in the U.S., but in Britain. This morning, several British members of the movement shut down London City Airport after they chained themselves together on a runway. In a statement, they said they wanted to highlight the way climate change has a disproportionate effect on black people globally. And that quote, black people are the first to die, not the first to fly in this racist climate crisis, end quote. Joseph Harker is The Guardian's deputy opinion editor and a former editor of the weekly newspaper Black Britain. I'm not surprised because it's been such a successful movement in the States in terms of building awareness of the sort of levels of police violence against black people. And it's a feeling that a lot of people in Britain and I'm sure black people around the world sympathize with. So 
it's natural that its success has led people over here to want to reproduce that. Mm. And what is different with the movement there, would you say? I think the biggest difference is that in the U.S., there are such shocking and appalling instances of police violence against black people that naturally people are very angry about it and they go onto the streets and they protest about it. I think the difficulty in a way over here is that there's not such extreme levels of police violence. Yes, people do get killed by the police. We saw an example of that just in August with someone being killed by a taser. Mm. But there's not the same levels of shootings of unarmed people And so in a way, it's more difficult to get that same level of emotional engagement in Britain. Now, the heart of uh, Black Lives Matter in the U.S. uh, is the African-American community, and many people of color have uh, kind of joined on since. How does that change once you get to the U.K.? The backdrop is very similar. The black population in Britain is traditionally from the Caribbean, which was again an enslaved uh, community that had been enslaved for generations in the Caribbean, before they migrated here to Britain. So there's, there's very many similarities in terms of how black people got to the UK compared to how they got to the US. Now, it's interesting, these uh, Black Lives Matter protests today at uh, London City Airport, they, they made a connection to climate change that it disproportionately affects people of color across the world. They've also spoken out about the refugee crisis as a Black Lives Matter issue. What do you make of all of this? I think those issues are true, but I'm not sure how high up climate change is in terms of the black British experience. I think if you asked 100 black people what your top 10 issues are in terms of uh, racism and discrimination you face in Britain, I think environment and climate change would come very low on the list, if if at all. I think it is about jobs, it's about criminal justice, it's about education. Yeah, why do you think they would make this seemingly far reach? Well, most of the protesters, it turns out, are actually environmental activists. They're white environmental activists. And so, in a way, that's caused another issue with whether that means that they really speak for black British people. So do you think Black Lives Matter in the UK is kind of struggling for relevance? I think calling yourself Black Lives Matter immediately makes you compare the situation for black people in the UK with black people in the US. It almost downplays the black British experience. But there are lots of issues... There's a new thing which the police are introducing in Britain now, which is called spit hoods, which are these hoods which are put over suspects' heads when they are when they're arrested, and they're reminiscent of Guantanamo hoods, mm. and they they look absolutely shocking. And, and surprise, surprise, the first person who's been seen to be have a spit hood placed on the head is a, is a black person, and we just know that they are going to be used more against black people than against white people. So there are a lot of issues which people can be very angry about in terms of what's happening in Britain. It's just surprising that they've chosen airports and climate change as their arena when there are so many other things happening. Joseph Harker, the deputy opinion editor for The Guardian newspaper, speaking with me from London. Thanks very much. Thank you. Damn you, Obama. President Obama has cancelled a meeting with the Philippines' President Rodrigo Duterte. It comes after Mr Duterte threatened to swear at Mr Obama if he raised the issue of drugs-related extrajudicial killings in a meeting that was due to take place on the sidelines of a summit of Southeast Asian nations in Laos. The row has overshadowed the first visit by a US sitting president to Laos. David Campanale reports. This is the first visit of an incumbent American president to communist Laos. But the actions of his predecessors are not easily forgotten in the region. During the Vietnam War, US bombers pulverised this small Southeast Asian nation in a failed attempt to thwart a communist takeover. 
they left a legacy of unexploded ordnance that still kills and injures scores of people every year. President Obama is expected to confront this bitter past during his visit. Locals want evidence of American action. In a side meeting, President Obama had intended to raise the thousands of extrajudicial killings of drug users and pushers in the Philippines. But the country's president moved to get in his retaliation first to his American counterpart. I am a president of a sovereign state, and we have long ceased to be a colony. I do not have any master except the Filipino people. Nobody but nobody. You must be respectful. Don't just throw away questions and statements. It's unusual for one president to tell another what to say or not say, but much rarer, as the Philippine leader did here, to say to his country's regional ally and the most powerful man in the world that he's the son of a prostitute. President Obama sounded nonplussed by his acid-tongued counterpart. I have seen some of those colorful statements in the past, and uh, so clearly he's a colorful guy. Um, and. What I've instructed my team to do is to uh, talk to their Philippine counterparts to find out uh, is this, in fact, uh, a time where we can have some constructive, productive conversations. The finding out part didn't seem to require much time. The idea of off-agenda talks between the pair are for now ruled off the agenda. That was David Campanale. <laughs> Five states hold ballot initiatives this November on whether to legalize recreational marijuana. And many voters and policymakers are studying Colorado's experience, where pot has been legal for nearly three years. Still, one issue remains hazy there, how to enforce laws on driving while stoned. Ben Marcus from Colorado Public Radio and Stephanie O'Neill of the member station KPCC in Los Angeles report. This story starts with a stay-at-home mom from the Denver suburbs. Her name is Abby McLean, and she was driving home from a late dinner with a friend two years ago when she came upon a DUI roadside checkpoint. I haven't drank or smoked anything, so I was like, let's go through the checkpoint. McLean is a regular marijuana user, like five times a day, but she insists she never drives while high. Still, the cop at the checkpoint tells her he smells marijuana, that her eyes are bloodshot. Eventually, he whips out handcuffs, and McLean freaks. Like, massive panic attack, and oh my god, I have babies at home, I need to get home, I can't go to jail. A blood test later revealed McLean had five times the legal limit of THC. That's the mind-altering compound in marijuana. So an open-and-shut case, right? Actually, no. McLean's attorney, Nadav Ashner, had a field day in court with Colorado's marijuana intoxication limit. Even the state's experts will say that number alone is something, but generally not enough. And we really hammered that home. 
Ashner got a hung jury, and McLean pleaded to a lesser offense. But hers is just one of a number of Colorado cases where this is now happening. Turns out measuring a person's THC level is actually a poor indicator of intoxication because unlike alcohol, THC stores in your fat. Tom Marcotte is co-director of the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at the University of California, San Diego. Unlike alcohol, which has a generally linear relationship between the amount of alcohol you consume, your breath alcohol contents, and driving performance, uh, the THC route of metabolism is very different. And that's why adapting drunk driving laws to marijuana makes for bad policy, says Mark Kleiman. He's a professor of public policy at New York University. You can be positive for THC a week after the last time you used cannabis, not subjectively impaired at all, not impaired at all by any objective measure, but still positive. Still, Colorado and five other states have such laws in the books because pretty much everyone agrees that driving while stoned can be dangerous, especially when combined with alcohol. What cops really need is a simple roadside sobriety test, and a common iPad may offer that solution. The scientists at UC San Diego are now working on several iPad apps that could eventually be used to measure how impaired you are behind the wheel. Like one where you have to follow a square moving around a screen with your finger, which measures something called critical tracking. And then there's this other one that measures time distortion because things slow way down when you're high. But that's all still experimental. In the meantime, some regular marijuana users like Abby McLean are scared to drive for fear of failed blood tests. I haven't gone out really since then because I'm paranoid to run into the same surprise. Uh Uh-oh, there's a DUI checkpoint. A checkpoint that for McLean could mean potentially thousands more dollars in attorney's fees to defend herself. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie O'Neill in Los Angeles. And I'm Ben Marcus in Denver. Now for an issue that doesn't get a lot of time on the campaign trail, but will be something the next president has to deal with. What to do about the nation's growing patchwork of marijuana laws. That's our topic on this week's Platform Check, where we examine what the candidates would do if they were president. NPR's justice correspondent, Carrie Johnson, is in the studio with us. Welcome back, Carrie. Hey, Audie. So nine states will vote on marijuana-related ballot measures this fall. Five would legalize the drug for recreational use, four for medical use. Um, but under federal law right now, it's still illegal to possess or sell marijuana, right? Absolutely. Marijuana is tightly restricted under the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, Authorities believe it has a high potential for abuse, and there's no federal currently accepted medical use. Under the law, it gets the same treatment as heroin and LSD. And just last month, the Drug Enforcement Administration rejected attempts to loosen some of those restrictions on marijuana, what's called rescheduling the drug. Here's what the DEA leader Chuck Rosenberg told me about that. Well, marijuana is not as dangerous as heroin, for instance. Clearly not as dangerous. But this decision isn't based on danger. This decision is based on whether or not marijuana, as determined by the FDA, is a safe and effective medicine. And it's not. 
the DEA did open up a way for more universities and institutions to grow marijuana for federal research purposes. And the Obama administration says it does support a lot more study of whether some component part of marijuana could be useful for medical patients. All right, so that's where things stand right now at this White House. And we're going to dig into what the presidential candidates have been saying, starting with Hillary Clinton. Clinton says she wants to reschedule marijuana to loosen some of those restrictions on it. She talked about her thinking on a town hall on ABC this year. And we need to be doing research on it because I am 100 percent in favor of medical uh, uses for marijuana. But I want to know what the evidence is. I'm also someone who believes that the states can be those laboratories of democracy. So I'm watching carefully what's happening in the states that have legalized it. In other words, Hillary Clinton wants more science and to leave things to the states. Now, what has Donald Trump said about all this? Audie, it's been a little bit difficult to pin Donald Trump down. The campaign didn't respond to my request for detailed information. 25 years ago, long before Donald Trump became a national political figure, he said he backed legalization of marijuana, at least for adults. But Bill O'Reilly, the Fox News host, asked Trump about his position on this issue back in February. I would really want to think about that one, Bill, because in some ways I think it's good and in other ways it's bad. I do want to see what the medical effects are. Audie Trump went on to say he's 100% in favor of medical marijuana. I talked today with Michael Collins of the Drug Policy Alliance, which supports legalizing the drug. And Collins told me that close aides to Donald Trump, people like New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions, have taken a hard line against marijuana legalization. Now, what about the third-party candidates, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson? I know this issue does come up quite a bit for them. Yeah, Gary Johnson actually worked as CEO of a marijuana business, a job that he left to run as the libertarian candidate for the White House. He has openly talked about his use of medical marijuana, though he says he stopped doing that uh, when he began the run for the White House. He's endorsed by the Marijuana Policy Project, which has given him an A-plus on the issue. They gave Jill Stein of the Green Party an A-plus as well. That's NPR's justice correspondent, Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thanks so much. You're welcome. I'm not sure anymore Just how it happened before The places that I knew Were sunny and blue I can feel it deep inside This black nigger's pride I have no fear when I say, and I said every day, every nigger is a star. Every nigger is a star. Who will deny that you and I, and every nigger is a star? Tempers flare tonight in Midland City as the city council are still avoiding questions about the interim mayor. Patsy Skipper is accused of posting a racial slur on her Facebook against the mayor-elect. Tonight was the first city council meeting since the election. WTVY's Nicholas Phillips was at that meeting. He joins us now. And Nick, I've heard there was quite the crowd. Well, to say it was a packed house in Midland City is an understatement. As soon as the council got through the regular agenda, questions about their character were immediately brought up. Just let me say something. Why don't you shut your mouth and let us say something? Of all of the hate and discontent that has plagued us. 
Emotions were high for both Midland City Councilmen and Citizens Tuesday, as the issue of race and the mayor's office were still in the air. As I said earlier, they have no regard for the, uh, the thoughts and opinions of the people that they actually work for. Midland City resident Gerald Williams brought forth a petition signed by over 100 people asking interim mayor Patsy Skipper to resign. We have a lot of people that want her to resign effective immediately. Williams says they also have over 200 signatures online. The petition was presented after Councilman George Williams brought up the post using the N-word on Skipper's Facebook page. She still insists her page was hacked. Most of them have no, no comment. Nothing to say. I think that's 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 cowardly. You have a comment? No. No comment. The comment sparked outrage. The Alabama NAACP called for an investigation. A representative was at the meeting, but wouldn't go into detail about their plan of action. Sending documents up to the state. Gerald says council members should be able to answer tough questions and not just respond with no comment. They work for us. That is how it actually goes. They are supposed to represent us and do what it is as for the will of the people. Skipper was not at tonight's meeting. Councilman Mal Adams said it was because she's still recovering from surgery. Devin? Thanks a lot, Nick. And newly elected Mayor Joanne Bennett Grimsley will take office November 7th. They say they want you successful, but then they make it stressful. You start keeping pace, they start changing up the tempo. Now, who is the cat riding out on the town? Stay trooper, want to stop him in his ride, pat him down. Mr. Nigga, 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 he got the speakers in the trunk with the bass on crumb. Now, who is the cat with the $100 bill? They got the sentence to the tab to make sure the shit is real. Mr. Nigga, 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 nigga. Well, it makes me upset, and then it, it makes me feel really sad. Emotional reaction to the arrest of a Scott County man accused in a racially charged attack on a local firefighter. And good evening. When Charleston firefighters responded to a house fire in Dealstat last Friday, they couldn't have predicted what would happen to one of their own. Authorities say the homeowner, 60-year-old Douglas Pullen, allegedly called a black firefighter a racial slur, then struck him with a wooden cane. Pullen faces charges of assault on an emergency worker and armed criminal action. Hank Cavanero joins us now live in the studio with reaction to the alleged assault and on the growing effort to better protect first responders. Jeff and Kathy, law enforcement and community leaders alike are both shocked by not just the alleged physical violence, uh, a, a physical attack rather, on a Charleston firefighter, but the hateful words police say Douglas Pullen used on that firefighter trying to save his home. You would think in 2016 that we would be way past that. Calvin Bird is a pastor at the New Covenant Ministries in Sykeston. He says the use of racial slurs like the one police describe Douglas Pullen using against a black firefighter doesn't surprise him. If I'm trying to help you stay out of a dangerous situation and then the only thing that you can think about is calling me something that will degrade me, then that's just really sad. He just was, was trying to um, help this person out. By one of Sheriff Rick Walters' deputies arrested Pullen the night of the fire. He supports the effort to strengthen the punishment when officers and firefighters come under attack. My opinion, I think this needs to be in place to help protect the first responders. You know, we're out here doing a job each and every day, and sometimes it's a thankless job. Uh, and any type of protection that we can get for our people, 
uh, I'm certainly in favor of. Many states are considering making assaults on all first responders a hate crime. You know, we're all out here doing the same job. We're, it's all a team effort. Uh, whether you're an EMS provider, whether you're a firefighter. Again, these guys are responding as as first responders for, for medical or fire or rescue. You know, they're, they're there to help somebody. Which members of the community, like Pastor Bird, notice. But the fact of the matter, these guys put their life on the line. I wouldn't do it. Pullen will face his two felony charges sometime next week. Kathy? Hank, thank you. There is movement in all four of our heartland states to make assaulting a police officer, firefighter, or first responder a hate crime. In Missouri, State Senator Mike Parson says he wants to make targeting police officers a hate crime. In Kentucky, the effort's already underway to amend the state's hate crime law to include offenses committed against police, firefighters, and first responders. Tennessee is taking similar steps to cover those public safety employees. And in Illinois, Chicago aldermen are urging state lawmakers to do the same. Right now, Louisiana is the only state to enact a law making it a hate crime to assault police, firefighters, or emergency service workers. California. ...on for the person behind a racist hate crime in the East Bay. Someone spray-painted a swastika and racial slur on the side of this house before setting it on fire. It happened early this morning along McCormick Court in Antioch. As KPIX 5's Jessica Flores explains, the family was lucky to make it out alive. The suspect used blue spray paint to write a racial slur Nigga. and draw a Nazi swastika across the front of the Antioch home. And police say before he left, he threw several Molotov cocktails at the home, blocking the front exits. My 28-year-old daughter woke me up and said, Mom, the house is on fire. Three adults and four young children escaped unharmed through a back door. The family used a fire extinguisher to put out some of the flames before the fire department arrived to the home on McCormick Court. The potential in the way these fires were set uh, for there to be a deadly outcome was, was very high. Rashawn Williams says her security cameras show who's behind the racist vandalism, but she says she doesn't recognize the person. Someone of Caucasian descent, and he looked like he was on videotape, and um, someone who's, I would say, prejudiced. She reviewed the video with police. Saw him light three bottles right there on the sidewalk and then proceed to throw them at the house. The community today is shocked to see a hate crime in their diverse neighborhood. It's very sad um, that we live amongst cruelty and evilness like this. We're disgusted and appalled that somebody would do this to a, a, a family in our community and we are going to do our best to bring them to justice. And justice is what the family wants. And I need to make sure I do whatever I can to protect my family so no one better not cross my path. Antioch police say they are looking for at least one suspect. Investigators haven't released a description and they haven't said if the suspect acted alone. In Antioch, Jessica Flores, KPIX 5.
Cal State Los Angeles students are back on campus now and one dorm is making a lot of news. The school's Black Student Union asked for a new housing option last year, so the university rolled out the Halsey Scholars Black Living Learning Community. It's a dorm for students who are interested in the black community or who are black. Critics are calling it segregated housing, but Cal State LA student Jonathan Thomas supports the dorm. It says black housing, they are automatically equated with black only, and it's just people who identify as black, so it can be for anybody. That sound courtesy of our media partner, NBC4. To give us some perspective on this, we're joined now by Sarah Brown, a reporter with the Chronicle of Higher Education, and she's been covering safe spaces on campus. Welcome to Take Two. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Sarah, this dorm may be a new thing at Cal State LA, but themed housing isn't new on college campuses. How common is it? So it's pretty common. Um, in the reporting that I've done on you know, living, learning communities, themed housing, um, you see quite a number of um, residential areas basically structured around a, a cultural theme. So it might be African-American culture, it might be Latino culture, it might be Native American culture. Um, so there are dozens and dozens of examples of uh, housing structured around these themes. Um, just as Cal State LA's new housing opportunity is, um, where there's been some controversy at places like uh, the University of Connecticut as well, well as the University of Iowa. They involve uh, living, learning communities that really are targeted toward black students um, very specifically. Um, but at Cal State LA, um, what officials there have said is that that's not the case at all. This is open to all students who are interested in African-American culture. And I want to get into to some of the criticism that, that Cal State LA has been receiving, but just lay out for us, what, how, many, how many dorm rooms are there and, and is it full? Who's applied? Who, who lives there? Are you talking about at Cal State LA? At Cal State LA, yeah. Um, so I can't speak specifically to um, how exactly many. I believe it's a couple of dozen. They Officials there have also said that there is a wait list, so obviously it's been very popular. Um, that has also been the case um, with uh, reporting that I've done at the University of Connecticut and at Iowa. There has also been a lot of interest in these housing communities and uh, there's a wait list at the University of Connecticut. Typically, these uh, themed houses involve uh, maybe two dozen students at UConn. It's about 50, um, all living in the same residential area. And tell us about some of the, the, the criticism at UConn and, and the University of Iowa and how that's played out. Right. So, as you know, the word segregation has been thrown around a lot by critics. Um, so, in the case of Cal State LA, as well as at Iowa and UConn, you've seen headlines like Black-only housing and segregated housing for Blacks. Um, so, a lot of critics are saying, you know, why are campuses segregating Black students away from the rest of the population? You know, isn't that problematic in and of itself? And doesn't it miss one of the main reasons students go to college, which is to interact and learn among a diverse student population? And um, campus officials I talk to will often counter and say, first of all, these housing communities are nothing like segregation because it's voluntary. And they'll add that just because students live in the same residential area doesn't mean that they're cut off from other students on campus. You know, they spend most of their day in classes, in the library, doing extracurriculars with other students on campus. Um, so that's not 
you know, the way that the critics portray uh, these uh, communities at all. And and the calling it a safe space on campus, I think, elicits the, the question, you know, what are students experiencing and, you know, maybe even focusing on Cal State LA that they that they feel like they need this space? Right. So particularly on predominantly white campuses, um, well, you know, one thing you'll often hear from students is that, um, you know, they are surrounded throughout the day by students, faculty, staff who don't look like them. Um, and that these living and learning communities, these themed houses, allow students to find, um, you know, community support among peers who understand the unique challenges and difficulties that minority students face on campuses. Um, and, you know, most of these themed houses also involve students taking a course or two together, you know, participating in programming like leadership development training, team building opportunities, that sort of thing. Um, so that's another way that, you know, black students say that, you know, these these communities allow them to succeed more, you know, both academically and, and socially um, and uh, that sort of thing. Um, so, and I would say that, uh, you know, the, the way it's interesting because at, Chicago, at the University of Chicago, there's been a lot of controversy um, over a letter that was sent to new students that, you know, basically said we do not endorse safe spaces. Um, and, uh, you know, but there hasn't been as much conversation about how safe spaces sort of crop up in, in campus dorms. And these, these living learning communities is what minority students say, no, this is uh, a safe space for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if some houses are more controversial than others, because, you know, I, I, I think we have women's dorms. I, I, you can think of LGBT safe spaces, Chicano or Latino safe spaces. I mean, are they all kind of equally controversial? I wouldn't say so. So I think you've seen a lot more um, controversy among housing centered around black culture. There hasn't been as much around, you know, Latino culture or, you know, housing geared toward women, housing geared toward the the LGBT community. Um, And I think what, you know, campus officials would say is that, you know, a lot of the ones I've talked to, you know, this this, this controversy is it mostly seems to be the result of, of right-leaning or conservative-leaning media outlets drumming up a controversy where there isn't much of one at all. I wonder, too, because Cal State LA reports about its student body demographics, 50% Latino, 20% Asian American, 15% white, and 10% African American. What does the composition of the student body on a college campus have to do with this conversation? So I think you'll see that many of these uh, themed houses uh, centered around a particular racial or ethnic culture do crop up on predominantly white campuses. Again, that sort of goes to what I was talking about, you know, where students will, you know, show up on campus and they'll be surrounded by uh, students who do not look like them and who might not understand, you know, their experience growing up, what they went through at home. and uh, they'll go into the classroom and they'll see a professor who doesn't really understand that either. Um, so I think if you look at a number of the uh, campuses where that have these themed houses, most of them tend to be uh, predominantly white. So you'll see like UC Berkeley, for example, has an, an, Africa, an Afro house. Um, Oberlin College in Ohio has an African heritage house. You know, Wesleyan University in Connecticut has a Malcolm X house. These are all examples of of colleges that are where white students are the majority, and uh, that's where these, these themed houses have really uh, taken root. Sarah Brown is a reporter with the Chronicle of Higher Education. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. Billy Holiday.
I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Tonight, some area residents say they've lost a voice. An activist during the Ferguson unrest, 29-year-old Darren Seals, was murdered before his killer set his car on fire. Good evening. I'm Steve Savard. And I'm Claire Kellett. His killer is still out there. Fellow activists and friends are speaking to News Force Justin Andrews about Seals' active stance in demanding change. The story is all new tonight at 6. Courageous. Activist Amir Brandy stood on the front lines with Darren Seals. He had a voice and he, he didn't bite his tongue. Following Ferguson, the plain-spoken and courageous young man surged as an advocate who would not back down until he saw change. Someone is this accepted or this loved, this much supported, and then he gets killed in that way. Chris Mosley went to high school with the 29-year-old prominent protester. He says Seals was a revolutionary. Mosley says Seals had life struggles but transformed them into steps of success. He's the epitome of I can be one way and I can turn my life around and not only that but help others too. Tuesday morning, police say Seals was found shot to death in a burning car. News 4 has been tracking the search for the suspect. Right now, police don't have any new leads, but they tell us they cannot solve this by themselves. They need your help. At this point, we don't have anything, um, and, and that's where we're at the brick wall. You know, is, is we're waiting for evidence, we're waiting for um, just clues from a phone call. His death has rocked activists across the country, but it's like salt on an open wound for St. Louis area activists. An innovator and mediator, they say, whose voice is now silent. A voice that once demanded change. Now there has been speculation that Seal's murder may be related to a similar case from November of 2014 when 20 year old DeAndre Joshua was found shot to death inside a car in Ferguson. St. Louis County police say they are aware of those similarities but do not have any information that would point to them being linked. Live in the newsroom tonight, I'm Alexandra Corey, News Channel 5 on your side. Well, today, prisoners in at least 24 states are set to participate in a nationally coordinated strike that comes on the 45th anniversary of the prison uprising at Attica. Much like the prisoners who took over New York's infamous correctional facility in 1971, today's prisoners are protesting long-term isolation, inadequate health care, overcrowding, violent attacks and slave labor. Today's actions follow similar protests earlier this year. In March, thousands in Michigan prisons launched a hunger strike after private vendor Aramac Corporation uh, Correctional Services served them unrefrigerated meat, and then the company called Trinity that was brought in to replace them served small portions of watery food. The same company prompted protests in Georgia when it underfed prisoners to the point that one resorted to eating toothpaste. In May, men in several Alabama prisons began a 10-day strike on International Workers' Day over unpaid labor and poor conditions. Organizers said guards retaliated by serving meals that are significantly smaller than usual, a practice they call bird feeding, and by putting the facilities on lockdown, partially to allow guards to perform jobs normally carried out by prisoners. During the strike, Democracy Now! spoke 
spoke with Kinetic Justice, who joined us by phone from solitary confinement in Holman Correctional Facility, co-founder of the Free Alabama Movement, one of the organizers of today's strike as well. He was serving his 28th month in solitary for organizing a similar protest in 2014. These strikes are our methods uh, for challenging uh, mass incarceration. Uh, as we understand that the prison system is a continuation of the slave system, and which in all instances is an economical system. Uh, therefore, for the reform and changes uh, that we've been fighting for in Alabama, uh, we've tried uh, petitioning through the courts. Uh, we've tried um, to get in touch with uh, legislators and so forth, uh, and we haven't had any recourse. Uh, therefore, we understood that um, our incarceration was pretty much about our labor and the money that was being generated through the prison system. Therefore, we began organizing around our labor and used it as a means and a method in order to bring about reform in the Alabama prison system. That was Kinetic Justice speaking by phone from solitary confinement in Holman Correctional Facility in Alabama in May. Well, prisoners striking today say conditions are not much different from those that prompted the largest prison rebellion, one of the largest prison rebellions, 45 years ago at Attica. It was September 9, 1971, when state police raided the upstate New York prison, ending a protest against racism, officer beatings, rancid food, uh, no rehabilitation programs, and forced labor. For four days, the unarmed prisoners held 39 prison guards uh, on, as hostages. On September 13th, then New York York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, Rockefeller ordered armed state troopers to raid the prison. Troopers then shot indiscriminately more than 2,000 rounds. Uh, in the end, 39 men would die, including 29 prisoners and 10 guards. Before we're joined by two guests, I want to turn to Attica prisoner Frank Big Black Smith. He died in 2004 at the age of 70. Big Black, as he was known, became a chief spokesperson of the prisoners during the uprising. In 2000, he and other prisoners won a $12 million agreement from the state of New York. During the uprising, he was forced to lie on a table while officers beat and burned him. He was also threatened with castration and death. This is an excerpt from the film Ghosts of Attica, a Lumiere production made by Court TV that features Frank Big Black Smith and the late Liz Fink, who served as the lead counsel for the former Attica prisoners. The first voice you hear is Big Black. People laying all over now, all bleeding and bloody and stuff. You know, so everybody know now that it's real, that this is it. You know, they're here now. They're in, they're in the yard now. They got control. State troopers just took their clubs and beat them down the stairs, broke people's legs, hit them on the tibia and broke tibias. On their back, on their head, in their genitals, on their front. You know, wherever they could hit them, that's where they beat them. I'm telling you, my name is being called. Where's Big Black? Where's Big Black? Get up, Black, get up. And he busts me with a nigger stick, pickaxe, and got a 38 in his hand. And I gets up, and he bam in my side, in my back, and made me run with my hand on my head over to the side. And before I got over there, two, three more correction officers with him now, and everybody's hitting me. That was Attica prisoner. 
Frank Big Black Smith. He became a chief spokesperson for the prisoners during the uprising. For more on Attica and its legacy, we're joined by two guests. David Rothenberg is with us, member of the Attica Observers Committee, one of the 35 people who brought was brought into Attica to negotiate on behalf of the prisoners. He went on to found the Fortune Society. And Heather Ann Thompson joins us, an American historian, author, activist, <clears throat> who's written an explosive new book. It's called Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. She's professor of history at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Her book opens with an epigraph from Attica Correction Officer Edward Cunningham. He says, quote, you have read in the paper all these years of the Milai massacre. That was only 170-odd men. We are going to end up with 1,500 men here if things don't go right, at least 1,500. Heather Ann Thompson, explain why you begin with that. Well, it's really important for folks to realize that this rebellion of nearly 1,300 men for basic human rights ends brutally when the state of New York retakes the prison. And even the hostages were at the end of this rebellion, begging the governor not to come in with force and to do the right thing, uh, improve conditions in the prison. And that quote, uh, and several others in the very beginning of the book, really reflect the desire of all participants uh, to come to a peaceful resolution and finally do something about the terrible conditions in Attica. For so many years, that 39 number, 39 men dead, um, the State authorities said that the prisoners slit the throats of their hostages. That turned out not to be true in even one case. Were they all killed by the state troopers? Yes. On the day of the retaking, every death was at the hands of trooper or correction officer bullets. And uh, the state stood out and told the entire world that the prisoners had, in fact, killed the hostages. And that story had a devastating effect on the long term, uh, on the future of criminal justice policy in this country. It really fuels the engine of punitive policy. And uh, to this day, uh, citizens will tell you that the prisoners killed the hostages at Attica. Well, one of the interesting things, this was at a period in, in, in American history when racial conflict was perhaps at its, its strongest, but yet Attica represented an interracial rebellion. There were white right. inmates and Latino inmates and African-American inmates who banded together. You tell the story of Sam Melville, the, mm -hmm. uh, the Weather Underground uh, 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 member who was in Attica at the time and participated mm -hmm. in the rebellion. There were many Latinos. And, uh, in fact, when we were in the Young Lords, we actually had a Young Lords group in Attica That's prison. Right. And we had two of our members, Jose uh, Fee Ortiz, mm -hmm. who's a leader of the Young Lords, mm -hmm. and then uh, Jose Paris, G.I who had come out of Attica, who went up there as part of the negotiating committee. So this was really an, an example of a racial solidarity among an oppressed Indeed. group. Indeed. And that's why it was so threatening to the state. Um, somehow, you have 1,300 men who are otherwise divided by, uh, by language or political persuasion or ethnicity or race, and they come together over the basic fundamental desire to be treated as human. David Rothenberg, um, you were called in by the prisoners, one of 35 people, along with William Kunstler and others, uh, the late great uh, lawyer. Talk about what your involvement was, why the prisoners you wanted you there, and what you found there. Well, I, I had been—Fortune Society had just started, and we were a volunteer organization at the time, but we were in—I was in correspondence with Roger Champin and Herbert Blyden, two of the men who, who emerged as leaders, and we had a— little simple newsletter, which was banned. And we went to court and won the federal court's rule, Fortune versus McGinnis, who was the commissioner, that they had no right to censor the inmate 
reading material. So I think they thought that we were this powerful organization that could make changes. And when they took over and they asked—they uh, didn't trust the state in the negotiation on the demands, they asked for a list of people to come in and act as observers, and my name was on the list. So I got a call from Arthur Reeve, who was an assemblyman from Buffalo, saying, will you come up to Attica? And I said, not alone. And two of the guys from Fortune, Kenny Jackson and Mel Rivers, we flew up into the yard. And, David, the importance of having that group there, because in most uh, prison uprisings, there are no outside witnesses. But here you had this group of people, and, and, and not just a counselor and you, but there were elected officials, uh, uh, Tom Wicker, deal. Tom Wicker of The New York Times. There was a large group of people that went up there uh, and actually then had a different version of events than the official version. This was a politically sophisticated group of inmates, which is why the state thought that outside revolutionaries were sponsoring were uh, igniting the trouble. What, in fact, caused the trouble is you can't put 2,000 people in cages, treat them brutally, and not think there's going to be repercussions. That's what happened at Attica. Can you describe some of these pictures you brought in, and especially, as you know, because you're on WBAI well, I, in New York, speak for a radio audience, describe well, in detail. Uh, These—this is the—that's uh, Commissioner Russell Oswald meeting with some of the leaders. I recognize L.D. Barkley and Roger Champ and uh, Herbert Blyden. That's people that I know. I think that's Flip Crowley there. Um, and and they, another picture uh, is prisoners naked oh, in the were, yard. This was horrible. They, they stripped everybody, and then they put the—when they brought them inside, they smacked them with—in their ankles and their knees and their testicles, so that it was brutal. It was—you know, they could have taken over the institution by gassing it, which they did. They didn't have to fire a, a bullet. Frank Big Blacksmith, when he was laid out, uh, yeah. described—he—they made him hold a football with his chin, uh, laid out naked on a table as they beat him. Why the football? It was there. Heather Ann. <laughs> Well, it was there, and he was uh, he was one of the players on a football team, and he had been targeted because the state accused him of having castrated a guard. So they tortured him to say that if he dropped that football, they were going to shoot him. And he had every reason to believe it, since he had just witnessed, over the course of 15 minutes, uh, another massacre. And Heather and Thompson, the, the, not only was the, the, the scandal of the actual massacre that occurred there uh, that, uh, uh, at the rebellion itself, but then the cover-up afterward, if you would talk about your quest to find out what actually happened. Well, so, for 45 years, the majority of the records for Attica remain sealed by the, by the state attorney general's office, or at least very difficult to get. And the reason is that for all of the death at Attica, no member of law enforcement was ever held responsible. Um, so the book was the journey to figure out who had created so much trauma, what had happened in the governor's office to lead to this retaking, who were the members of law enforcement that not only uh, shot their weapons, but indeed the highest levels of the state police who worked very hard to tamper with evidence, to conceal evidence, and to protect their own. Um, and that was uh, a key journey for finding and, out and that information. And uh, you the, the, the chain all the way up to Washington, D.C. and the White House, right? Indeed. In uh, the story of Attica resonates nationally and internationally, uh, both because it was televised and people cared very much what happened there, but also because at every level, 
for the next 45 years, from the lowest level workman's comp bureaucrat to the presidency of the United States, the Supreme Court, the Justice Department, everyone turned a blind eye to the torture that continued to go on behind the walls of Attica in the wake of the rebellion. And so that story is very important. There are heroes in our book, and one of them is Malcolm Bell, who Indeed. was a conservative Republican who was hired by the state to be an investigator, and he he couldn't remain quiet because he saw the cover-up. And he emerges from your book as a really heroic figure. Yes. It changed his life because he, he discovered the truth. There are a few heroes, and they really stand out. The coroner, who went public at great expense to himself to tell the, the world that, no, in fact, the prisoners hadn't killed the hostages, that it was trooper bullets. Malcolm Bell is a hero because he blew the whistle on the inside of the Attica investigation that, in fact, they were not going to go after the police, no matter that all the deaths were at the police hands. And what about that call you received from a clerk in, a, uh, in Buffalo about this trove of documents? Well, indeed, I'd been looking and looking for Attica documents. Uh, combing uh, upstate New York and uh, happened upon a whole series of documents that happened to just be in a random room in a courthouse. And uh, frankly, I don't think that they knew what was there. It was a wall full of Attica documents. And the most important in those were uh, evidence from the state's own investigation, uh, its own records about who had done what at Attica. The Muslim prisoners, David. They, well, in, in your book, you validate what we witnessed. It was the Muslim brothers that protected the guards that were the hostages. They surrounded them. Make sure they knew that they had to be protected and saved. And in, indeed, I mean, uh, the the yard was peaceful. Uh, the yard was organized in no small measure to the Muslim brothers in the yard, uh, the Attica brothers, who were insistent that the hostages were important and that the men sitting there in that circle would have mattresses to sleep on and food to eat. And that was crucial, because at the end, uh, that's why the guards are asking Rockefeller to try to help these guys and do the right thing, rather than gun them down, which, of course, is what happens. Yeah, you also uh, write in your book that— um that uh, Minister Farrakhan, who the prisoners had requested to be one of the negotiators, uh, declined to do so because supposedly the, uh, the leader of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Mohammed, had told him not to. Well, um, that was certainly evidence that I found. But it was interesting, because a lot of people were asked to come, and for a variety of reasons, they couldn't be there. And yet, there are so many observers, such as David, and those folks played a remarkable role. I mean, they kept insisting again and again that they stick to the negotiations, that the state negotiated in good faith, and indeed, at the very end, were calling Rockefeller, insisting that he at least come to Attica, at least assure these guys that if they surrendered, that they would not be harmed. And he refused to do it. And, and in, Why? Well, for multiple reasons, but not the least of which was his own political ambitions. His party had moved very much rightward. He wanted to impress the Republican Party that he was yeah. tough on crime. But also, it was Descri a black rebellion. Describe and what you write in the book about the breakfast. I'm reading the book, and I just threw it down when she was describing the planning strategy. By yeah, the well, the, the, they were very clearly intent on going in with force from the very beginning. The only reason, incidentally, they didn't go in earlier was because of the observer team there. And when they finally do go in, I discovered that they deliberately don't tell the prisoners that it's going to be a bloodbath if they don't give up. They don't give them an ultimatum. And while it's happening, Rockefeller is eating a scrambled egg breakfast <laughs> with 
Bacon in his mansion and is being congratulated by Richard Nixon for having handled this so beautifully. What, was and, what about Oswald, the, the, um, the warden, his role? Well, Oswald was a very tragic figure. Yes. He was a liberal uh, prison reformer. Um, he it was it really is his insistence that negotiations continued as long as they did with his own uh, people in the Department of Corrections. But at the end of the day, um, he uh, proves very ineffective in halting what has been decided above his pay grade, which is there's going to be a retaking. I always said he was a good man who failed history. Yeah, he I think didn't that's right. Rise because he had been paroled, he became commissioner of correction because of his progressive position as right. as parole head, and he was considered a leader. And the fact that he went up there was unprecedented. He went. One of the pictures is, is him sitting with the. He went in the yard, but he was. He didn't understand them. Exactly. exactly. He he was he was a. Uh, I don't know how you describe a uh, academic. No, Why? I, I don't want to blame. I the want to academics. ask about the negotiating team. You and the negotiating team. If you had stayed in the yard, would the state troopers have opened fire? What word did you get? Were you well, told to leave? Uh, we were in and out, and and eventually it was reduced down to five people: uh, Clarence Jones, Kunstler, um, John Dunn, Herman Badillo, because we felt we were too cumbersome a group. But there were points in the—we would meet after the takeover for months and months at Kunstler's house, and the feeling was we would have been killed had we stayed there. One of the most important things in the book that I discovered was there was a myth for years after Attica that the hostages that were killed was, uh, was a, a, a mistake, accidental, shouldn't have happened. And it's very clear that the state knew the hostages were going to die. Uh, they discussed it before they went in, and their own state employees were dispensable. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that had the observers been in there, uh, the, there was no controlling this once it was unleashed. These prisoners were at the mercy of people who had been for four days uh, passing out weapons indiscriminately. And uh, when they went in, these troopers took off their identifying badges mm -hmm. so that they would not be held accountable for what then happened. They used some, some of them use their personal guns as Absolutely. well? Absolutely. And, and, and you also seem to uh, uh, talk about this question of when some of the, uh, the prisoners were killed. Was it all in the initial shooting, or were some deliberately killed by the guards afterwards? Well, I think the evidence is pretty clear that, um, as David has said elsewhere, um, Law enforcement had control of this prison from the moment they dropped the gas. The gas is a powder. It clung to people's nasal passages, made them sick, incapacitated everyone in the yard. Then the shooting begins. For 15 minutes, it continues. And what is significant is that all of the observers reported later that they could still hear gunfire many hours later that day. And many of the prisoners reported that not only had people been killed after the retaking, but the very specific men had been targeted by law enforcement. Bar Barclay and Melville, people have told me that they had seen them alive after the takeover. L.D. Barclay, who was so eloquent and whose voice was heard on national television during the protests, was targeted, as was Sam Melville, who was perceived as a traitor to his race the because he was white. The second epigraph in the book is a quote from the National Guardsman James O'Day, uh, who describes an incident at Attica. This is the National Guardsman, quote, The officer pulled out a Phillips screwdriver and told the naked inmate to get on his feet or he'd stab the screwdriver into his rectum. Then he just started stabbing him. That's right. 
In the aftermath is when the real brutality begins. The uh, doctors are trying to help prisoners while guards are dumping them off of stretchers, kicking them, uh, urinating into wounds, uh, making the most horrific scene unfold. And indeed, this National Guardsman, among many, was trying to tell people outside what was happening. Uh, this particular man tried to get uh, the Justice Department to look into this. He, he called the FBI. He called the Justice Department. And again, at every level, people abandon these guys to this fate. Why the book is so powerful is a lot of these stories I heard over the years, one by one, from individuals as they came out. To see it collected at one time gives you that overwhelming sense of what the state did and didn't have to do. And you also say that the, the, some of the records you found, investigators concluded that the, uh, particular uh, guards killed particular prisoners, but never pursued any attempts to charge them with those. That's right. And, of course, there are many more records we have yet to see, but the records I did see indicated that despite the attempts of the state police to tamper with evidence and conceal evidence, uh, there was evidence, and that evidence not only indicated specific troopers that had killed specific inmates, but also specific troopers who had killed specific hostages. And those people could have been indicted, um, and instead the state chose to indict 62 prisoners for all that had gone wrong at Attica, again sending the message to the world that Attica was about prisoner uh, barbarism uh, and that those sorts of people don't deserve basic human rights. And the names you name have never been named publicly before. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and indeed— um, What surprised you most? Who did you talk about? Uh, what surprised me most was actually not the lower-level troopers who I name, uh, but, but actually the highest-level troopers, uh, the head of the New York State Police, uh, who people who would literally step in to make a low-level trooper res resign rather than face prosecution, uh, top police officers who are tampering with photographs. Um, uh, but again, the, the, the responsibility still lies with the state of New York. They're the ones that sent these guys in and then afterwards allowed these guys to investigate the retaking that they had just carried out. And the settlement? The settlement against the, uh, with the, the prisoners? Well, the settlement was very important. It took 30 years. It took uh, determination on the, uh, the part of these men, such as Frank Blick, Big Black Smith, to stick with it. Um, but I think the nation was also feeling like they finally got justice. Uh, no brother feels like they got justice. Um, it was a pittance uh, for some people. It was $6,500 for a, a death at the end of the day. Um, and the cost was uh, still there because the state still has not re admitted responsibility, uh, still denies that anything happened at Attica. A comment on the prison strike today. Well, I think uh, we are back here, and we are back here in no small part because uh, the nation failed to learn the lessons of Attica, and uh, we created one of the most brutal uh, prison societies in the world. And as was the case in Attica, when you treat people as animals uh, and they are human beings, they will resist, and we are seeing that across the country again today. Every time I talk, they say I'm too aggressive. I was out here spazzing, now y'all get the message. On the field, I'm over reckless on my Odell Beckham. Odell Beckham Jr. So while all of this Kaepernick stuff is going on, Leah Dunham, is, is that how you pronounce her name? I've never heard of her before this week. I guess she does a show on HBO, Girls or something. Never heard of her. Didn't know who she was, didn't know what she looked like, know, know absolutely nothing about her. 
all I all I saw was that she was talking to Amy Schumer. She said some weird stuff about Odell Beckham, and it blew up. And at first, I was I like I you know I read it, but I was so caught up in the stuff I was doing with Kaepernick, I didn't actually think about it. You ever did that before? You read something, you're like, that's kind of strange, and you just kind of move on to something else, and then you come back to it and be like, hold up, what? <laughs> And that's what happened with with this situation with this Leah Dunham person. Apparently, she was at the Met Gala. You know, the Met Gala, big thing with a lot of celebrities, a lot of pretty people, whatever. And I guess she was sitting or around Odell Beckham. And and OBJ was just doing whatever, whatever famous people do in these type of things. He was fiddling around with his phone. He was looking around at people. And he, he wasn't paying any attention to her because he doesn't know her. And she writes or, or says this, this what she believes he was thinking in his head about, you know, not having, you know, sex with her and that she looks weird and all of this, you know, stuff that, you know, is not not he that's he's looking at her like she's not his body type that he wants. It was some weird stuff, man. It was essentially putting thoughts into Odell's mind about him, you know, sexualizing other people in the room, but not sexualizing her. And she was offended, you know, by that. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Women, not all, some, get upset a lot of times, and sometimes rightfully so. Because men objectify them and maybe not in the politest ways. Like, I'm not so far to say, like, you know, you, you should be able to say somebody's pretty or beautiful or even sexy. You can, you can say it in a polite way, but sometimes it's not polite. So they get upset about that. But then on the flip side, you pay them no mind and they're upset about that, too. So, you know, you know, which one is it? Is it, you know. Is it Uchi Wally Wally or a black girl's lost? So at first, like I said, just weird, right? Just strange. And then I woke up today and, and really had time to look at it and, and read what she wrote and her apology and all of the tweets and weird stuff that she was doing. And I started thinking about it, man. Do you know, and you should know, obviously, that you know there were times in our country where even looking at a white woman the wrong way to somebody else, you might not have been looking at all, could get you strung up on a tree. Do anybody feel bad for Bill Cosby? Hung. Your life killed. And no one taking the trial for it. No one. Just looking at a white woman. Glancing. Someone thinks that you're glancing at them. Even today, 2016, we've made progress. I will give you that. But even now, 2016, if you're walking around with a white girl, there's still some lingering eyes on you. That's just the way it is. So you have to understand that when you get involved with a, if you're a black guy, you get involved with a white girl. 
even today, 2016, white girl can come to your house uninvited, thinking about stealing your jewelry, get kicked out of your house, and the LAPD will send SWAT and arrest you, the black guy. Now, granted, we all don't have, you know, reps like Chris Brown, but still. You can't tell me that there's not stereotypes that still exist between black men and white women. Black men are seen as aggressive, overly sexual, mandingo warriors. White women are seen as soft, lily white. So accusations come up. And if there are accusations of a white woman against a black man, your guilt is going to be seen a little bit harsher. It's not going to be quite innocent until proven guilty. And the, the crazy thing about that is even as a black woman, if a black woman and a white woman accuse a black man of something, and let's say justifiably so, let's say it was for real, let's say it's not, 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 not something made up or anything, equally, the white woman's story is always going to be taken a little bit more seriously than the black woman. That's messed up. So you can't be putting stuff in black guys' head. We already got enough to deal with. If 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 a white girl walked, if a white girl was was was, you know, came home with Odell Beckham, and he did nothing to her, and she went to the police and was and was upset about whatever, SWAT would be at Odell's Beckham's condo or house or whatever. So this is dangerous. It's dangerous. You can't be putting thoughts into somebody's head that you don't know what they're thinking about. This man doesn't even know you. Never met you. Wasn't rude to you. Wasn't paying you no mind. And you you gonna go on, on and make a, a, a statement like that? That he's looking around the room thinking about who he wants to have sex with and he's, a, you know objectifying everybody are you crazy are you literally crazy but she gets away with it in in some cases some some media people jumped on the story it was like yeah he probably was white woman privilege don't do that as a black man we have enough to worry about Okay, we, we we walk outside, people think we're predators, super predators, we got the cops, you know, we got, it's hard, you know, you know, other guys, you know, we got a lot of issues that we got to deal with. The last thing we need is, is somebody putting other thoughts in our heads. We already have stereo. Well, he's a predator. Well, now, now we even if we're not doing anything, he's a predator in his mind. He's thinking about being a predator. Come on, man. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 10th, 2016. So I have been told this is our weekly 
compensatory call-in. Looking forward to hearing listeners, non-white listeners' views, thoughts, observations from things that took place over the last week. Uh, Definitely chime in if you have commentary. The number to dial, 641-715-3640, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you could watch the background noise, that would be super uh, appreciated. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment with a lot of other folks uh, talking, being loud uh, in the background, if you could use your mute button, uh, that would be extra appreciated. Thank you kindly just to help us preserve the audio quality of the broadcast. Once again, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com As I said, listener-supported counter-racist radio. The PayPal button is in the top right corner on the blog. If you're not in the PayPal, feel free to drop us an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, Thanks again to all of the folks who have invested, supported, uh, closing in on eight years broadcasting. Hopefully we have provided some uh, constructive info uh, to help people get a better understanding of what racism, white supremacy is and how it works. Uh, Thanks again. I think I said something about this earlier in the week, but thanks again to all the folks who wrote uh, and helped uh, the folks at TuneIn get on their job and update our feed. It is working. Uh, It's been restored for a few days now. I think all the programs that we've done uh, this week, uh, you could have caught them on TuneIn. Checked it today. It's working fine. So uh, if that's uh, your preferred method for checking out the cows, it should be restored. Uh, The address is posted on our Facebook page. Uh, I've shared it numerous times, tweeted it out as well. So if you need uh, assistance, help finding it, let me know. You can even just go to uh, you can even uh, just go to the TuneIn page and do a search uh, for racism or white supremacy or even the cows, and it should pop up. You'll see our logo, and you can check it out there. Anywho, uh, quick things that I will share before uh, we get to folks who dialed in. Number one, I did not play an audio clip uh, dealing with this, but I did uh, post it on my Facebook page. I think I tweeted it as well. Um, Surprisingly, I think in the weeks that the whole Colin Kaepernick thing has been going on, I don't think we've played one sound clip uh, related to all of that, and that has not been accidental or happenstance. At any rate, uh, amidst all of this, other people have been, other athletes have been joining in and taking a knee or sitting Uh, during the national anthem, during various uh, sporting contests, other NFL players, and it's even spread out beyond the NFL. Uh, This week, uh, there was a report. Megan Rapinoe, this is a gay white woman. She is a 
member of the U.S. women's national soccer team, and she took a knee during the national anthem uh, last this past Sunday, and she gave a statement as to why she was doing this, and she said, uh, being a gay, it should have been a gay white woman, but she said being a gay American, but being a gay white woman, I know what it means to look at the flag and not have it protect all of your liberties. It was something small that I could do and something that I plan to keep doing in the future and hopefully spark some meaningful conversation around it. It's important to have white people stand in support of people of color on this. Uh, she had a longer statement where she had more to share uh, in my view this is a pretty significant act of racism white supremacy i said this on my facebook uh, page and i want to be very clear uh this is not saying go out and mistreat uh, or quote unquote disrespect anybody who identifies as gay lesbian lgbt anything else but i am being very queer unequivocal the practice the system of white supremacy racism terrorism against black people is in no way comparable to what anybody faces on the basis of being gay. That is not my view. That is based on evidence. If you look at the evidence worldwide, it is simply inaccurate. It is dishonest to try to say that the system of white supremacy as it is practiced, maintained worldwide by the global white minority is comparable to how quote-unquote gay people are treated that is nonsense and in my view it is extremely dangerous i think whites do this sort of thing all the time to spread confusion to make it seem like racism is equivalent to all these other forms of mistreatment that may happen i do understand that you do have individuals who are classified as gay who do who are mistreated you have incidents and that sort of thing yes that does happen but that is not a worldwide enterprise to make sure that these people are permanently, eternally abused and terrorized in all areas of people activity. And I guarantee you no one on this planet is going to be able to show you evidence to substantiate such a claim. But I thought this was a significant act of racism. I'm sure there are a good number of victims of racism who might think, well, yes, this white woman, uh, Megan Rapinoe, is the greatest thing ever. And it's so great to see her supporting and all that. I could not disagree more. I would not be surprised if you see more of this as we roll moving forward um also thought uh it was interesting uh the leah dunham clip uh you heard some of that at the end i saw that earlier in the week uh i was a tad confused myself leah dunham she's the white woman she i think wrote directed is most responsible for the hbo show girls which i had heard of before uh that also got a lot of attention i think that show is set in new york i've never seen it reading is more important than watching television but as I understand it I do remember reading quite a bit about it uh, when it first came out it's set in New York and it's focused all on these uh, white women and there are no black characters in the show and a lot of people pointed that out and accused her of being racist that came up again this week when she made her accusations against uh, NFL player Odell Beckham uh, Jr. I was confused because when I first read her article and she was saying all of these odd things she was at this event at the uh, the Met Gala I guess that took place this past week or what have you 
and he was looking at her odd or I guess wasn't showing her any attention because of her having on a tuxedo and all of this. He didn't find her attractive and it was just so bizarre what she had written. I thought that Odell Beckham Jr. had actually said these things to her, like had verbalized, oh, I don't think you're very attractive and you're shaped like a marshmallow and blah, blah, blah. I thought he had said all of these things, which I wouldn't have had a problem with. I wouldn't have been angry about it. It would have just been, you know, BGQ, he said what he said and moving forward. But then when I continued to look and, and I got a clearer understanding, it was like, oh, he did not say any of this. You are just practicing white supremacy and being upset because this black male victim of racism did not show you any attention. Got it. Now I understand. No confusion. This, in my view, would be another illustration of white narcissism. Dr. Welsing talks about this, where I am supposed to, as a white person, white individual, male, female, child, I am supposed to be getting all of the attention. You are supposed to be focused on me, and I can be upset with you if you are showing me attention, and then I can just play it that this savage Negro brute, uh, he was, you know, raping me with his eyeballs and you know I was just so uncomfortable and I, I had to scamper away it just you know I was so unnerved it could have been that way or she can take it the other route he didn't show me any attention and he didn't think I was attractive and I was you know not under his gaze just fascinating event I'm glad some other people talked about it I know it did get a good bit of attention earlier in the week the danger of white women all the way around uh, one of the other things that I thought was important the whole focus on the 45 year anniversary of the Attica prison revolt. Uh, I thought it was very interesting. Uh, she, the white woman and uh, Heather Ann Thompson, uh, who was interviewed on democracy. Now she did a lot of interviews uh, this week. Her book just came out uh, suspected racist Heather Ann Thompson uh, in the other interviews. She did not have, they did not have the same uh, racial focus. Obviously white supremacy is a central aspect of the story but it was emphasized a bit more on democracy now and in particular one of the things where I would say one of the primary things that leaped out to me Dr. Francis Cress Welsing genetic annihilation keeping your eyes on the balls the number of times that testicles genitals uh, came up in that sound clip and even I would say when they shared one of the anecdotes that one of the black inmates that the white race soldier guard took a screwdriver and threatened to ram it in his rectum. All of that is in the ISIS papers, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's theory on display. Uh, it is incredible. I would encourage folks to go back and reread her text uh, if you do not pick up that sort of thing or if you do not understand the connection. Even them making one of the black inmates hold a football under his chin while he is nude and being pummeled and threatened with castration. That is, it does not get any clearer in terms of representing what the legend counter-racist scientist Dr. Francis Cress Welsing talked about, wrote about on this program 31 times. Amazing uh, bit of information. I would certainly encourage folks to uh, 
do research uh, to get a better grasp of what took place 45 years ago uh, at Attica Prison, upstate New York, and even connecting it with what is happening now. Uh, and again, with anniversaries, it seemed like a lot of things converged uh, this weekend, the 45-year anniversary of what happened uh, at the Attica Prison Revolt. This is the 20-year anniversary of the murder of Tupac Shakur, and then the 15-year anniversary of 9-11, amongst other things that have uh, taken place in the early portion early portion of uh, September. Uh, again, as I stated on my Facebook page, the master terrorists are white. Be very clear about that in all the chatter and dialogue that's going to be taking place about terrorism over the next 24, 48 hours. Uh, with that, we will get to the phone line, the number again, 641-715-3646. Four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, if we could refrain from using metaphors, that would be appreciated. I don't say that for any other program. Uh, I have never said that we should not use metaphors at all. I employ uh, metaphors, analogies, comparisons. I do that myself. Uh, I simply state when we discuss racism, white supremacy on the Saturday, Saturday compensatory call-in, uh, we are supposed to be mindful about how we use words to articulate our views, thoughts, observations on racism, white supremacy. Uh, if we could just make an effort to be as simple, explicit, direct, in communicating our thoughts, uh, frequently, a lot of times, metaphors, they are used. Uh, they are not accurate. The things that are being compared are not equivalent. I think racists do this frequently on a deliberate basis to spread confusion. I just think a lot of times victims, myself included, uh, think sometimes that in expressing our ideas, sometimes we uh, use metaphors or analogies and what have you uh, and just not having a total understanding of what racism is, how it works. Uh, sometimes we use metaphors that are not the best uh, and or are simply comparing things that are not equivalent, uh, and that is not helpful. I see that a lot. I think if we could just work to be as unambiguous, direct, and as simple as possible in articulating ourselves, I think that that would be very helpful in solving this problem. That said, uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, line should be open. Uh, feel free, share your thoughts. Greetings, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, quite briefly, uh, two thoughts come to my mind. Uh, in the uh, previous report, uh, I would say when, when counter-racist logic is razor-sharp, codified, it is the goal of the racist white supremacists to, to trivialize thought and action by injecting a story that can be made to believe is similar, but it's not. Uh, the white gay female not standing for the pledge. Uh, Counter-racist logic makes white people uncomfortable because it indicts all of them, including the likes of Tim Wise, Peggy McIntosh, 
you know, that, that, that uh, version of racist white supremacy, the more refined ones. Uh, number two, uh, the non-white inmates uh, at uh, Attica in the state of New York were, uh, from my understanding, by watching the eyes on the prize and the, and the, and the uh, amount of study that I put behind it, were inspired by George Jackson and the Soledad Brothers' uh, revolt that took place in San Quentin. Uh, and they were aware that he was, he was uh, uh, murdered uh, at San Quentin uh, months, months before uh, their uh, insurrection that took place at Attica Prison. And that's all I have to say for right now. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to know, Gus, what's the meaning of BGQ? BGQ, uh, it's an acronym. It is in Mr. Neely Fuller Jr.'s uh, writings. Uh, it is Victims Guaranteed Qualified or Victims, Gar- uh, Victims Guaranteed Qualification. Uh, it means that any non-white person victim of white supremacy, that they are qualified to share any views, observations, thoughts that they have about racism, white supremacy, and or counter-racism, even if the view or position that they take is, I don't think there is a such a thing as racism, white supremacy, that they are qualified uh, just on the basis of being non-white, being a victim of racism, they are qualified to take any stance that they want, and that that should not be uh, argued, um, there should not be any sort of argument or conflict uh, against that person by another non-white person, meaning uh, whatever your view is about racism, white supremacy, uh, I as a non-white person, I should not have a problem with that. I should not have conflict with you on that basis. You are guaranteed just on the fact that you are being mistreated in a system of racism, white supremacy. You are guaranteed uh, the right to come to whatever conclusion, analysis, uh, thought that you have about the system or what should be done about this. Uh, and I think his goal, Mr. Fuller, I think his goal or his reason behind that concept is to keep down confusion so that, or to keep down conflict uh, so that non-white people are not getting into arguments and bickering with one another because we have different views or perspectives on racism, white supremacy, and or counter-racism. But victims guarantee qualification, I think it should be in all of his writings if you want to check it out. And I think he explained it uh, one of his previous visits on the program. He spent some time to share his thoughts on what it is and why he came up with that concept. All right. Thank you. Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I agree with you, Gus, and to the other callers and the listeners. Um, there are a few things I wanted to, to touch on. Um, the first thing was the uh, Black Lives Matter in Britain uh, the clip about that and the fact that they were um, they shut down an airport in regards to their protest and um, earlier I think it was earlier this week um, Thomas has sent an email I don't know if you saw it but it was um, discussing Black Lives Matter and um, also I was looking into the origins of Black Lives Matter and the people behind the organization as it stands in the United States are white people um, it just kind of reminds me of the NAACP which was also started by white people as well. Um, and I was wondering what white people in Britain might be behind their version of Black Lives Matter, because 
it seems like um, just like if you read the Black Lives Matter website, um, it actually more speaks towards honoring uh, anti-sexual behavior and the rights of LGBT, whatever letter they're going to choose this week, groups. Um, and it seems to be um, more geared towards that than anything else, at least if you read, take the time to read what information they provide on their website. So I just wonder what white people might be behind that group in Britain since they're not really taking an approach uh, towards um, something of substance, more or less they're, they're shutting down the airport rather than dealing with, let's say, p- police brutality um, against black people there, at least based on, on the clip. Um, also, um, the clip about the burning of the, the home of the black people in uh, on the West Coast, I think it was in Antioch, California. Um, it was interesting. They had the white male that was being interviewed, and he was talking about how sad it was that they have this kind of hate in their community. And I just, I think that he could have been the person who who, who did the act himself. I don't trust white people, uh, rhetorical ethics. And that that being a linchpin of the way they function, they, you know, he could stand there on camera and say whatever he wants to say. But, you know, more than likely, or it's possible, he could probably be the person who actually did it himself, or he might know the culprit. So anytime white people get up and speak about anything having to do with um, counter-racism in a public forum where black people are being mistreated in such a overt and disrespectful way, I don't trust them whatsoever. So that's, that's just my feeling on that situation. I wanted to say RIP to Prince Buster, the uh, ska pioneer and legend. He died as well. I believe it was either, I think it was today, if I'm not mistaken, or yesterday. So I wanted to um, just say rest in peace to him. Also, uh, today is the anniversary of the Stoner Rebellion in South Carolina. So I wanted to kind of acknowledge that. And then also I saw an article um, earlier this week where uh, whites have figured out how to use an EEG, which is, I guess, like an electrical brainwave scanner to uh, ascertain uh, people's deepest secrets. And what they did was they just had groups of people, I think it was like 2,000 people, and um, they just basically checked the brainwaves of people that had different issues. One of the groups they spoke about were alcoholics, and they found that when they did a test on multiple alcoholics, they got the same brainwave patterns. So just based on that basic demographic, they're able to find out very deep secrets about people just by seemingly innocuous brainwave patterns that are being emitted through the the process of uh, people just being alive. So I found that to be very interesting. And then um, also, um, oh, I sent an email regarding Nate Parker and the fact that, I don't know if you saw it, but the fact that um, they did a screening of his, his movie and he had gotten a standing ovation at the end of the film. And I thought about it, and I wrote this in the email, that if uh, white people are working so hard to uh, destroy this film before it comes out, I believe that it must have some constructive value because anything that agitates the, the ire of white supremacists is something that is constructive, in my opinion. And I thought about it, and, and now that we're about to read the spook who sat by the door, there's no way that white people would want ideas like that of the Grand Sester Nat Turner, who basically... I uh, thought about white people uh, the same way I would I would say that um that uh, wildlife does when you have two predatory species and they come in contact with each other one species will try and take out the other just to knock out competition whereas with um with uh, the ancestor Nat Turner he thought about the fact that even white children they would grow up to practice racism and potentially uh, harm other black people so he went out with the idea of taking all of them out understanding the fact that that would alleviate potential harm to other black people. And I think ideas like that or ideas like uh, 
that are conveyed in the spook who sat by the door are ideas that white people do not want to get um, in the minds of black people via film, especially in the context of white supremacy as practiced in slavery. And the last thing um, I wanted to touch on was uh, there was an article I sent you um, regarding white drug use and the fact that now these heroin addicts are using public libraries to uh, use their drugs. So they'll find a nice little quiet corner in a public library where any child or any person can come and basically walk up, walk up to them shooting up. And I was just um, just thinking about it, and I, and I wrote in the email that uh, white people get to use drugs wherever they want, like public libraries, and they even get needle, needle accommodations at certain store chains. We have talked about that before. While black people were confined to drug dens and crack houses and are demonized as uh, the, the face of drug use in America, um, so I just find that to be very interesting, just the difference between how uh, white people are allowed to do drugs and how they're treated and how black people are. Thank you very much, and I'll meet my line. Prompt listeners, uh, again, about the metaphors, metaphors, be uh, direct, explicit. We could uh, not do metaphors for this broadcast. Grand, super appreciated. I apologize. No apologies needed, sir. None needed. Uh, other folks uh, that we haven't heard from, if y'all had commentary, feel free. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers, Lars, everyone else on the line, firefighters. Um, I had a few um, things I wanted to touch on. Um, first, I wanted to say I did get that article from Lars, and um, wow, they can shoot up in. Um, hospitals and then um, you know, libraries now. I wonder what they're going to do with the books. <laughs> um, the part about the college campuses, uh, I think that college campuses are social experiments. And um, I started to think this recently because I have a cousin who's um, in her senior year in college and she has these views and she considers herself to be a feminist and um, she also has this view about white privilege. And, um, you know, I think that their design. To socially engineer young minds to accept the number one problem in the world, which is racism and white supremacy. And they're taught to think that their education will somehow be their acceptance into whiteness. Um, I don't think it serves the purpose of anyone other than the white students and the white supremacists that have an integrated college campus with dorms. Uh, our brightest young scholars cannot be, they can't effectively learn counter-racism logic or come to counter-racist solutions exactly if they're housed in a, you know, the Bill Ben Tillman or the Thomas Jefferson dorms with the white students, you know. I really think that um, one thing that they should protest is that they do get their own housing accommodations in campuses so that way Maybe they could come up with some solutions without having those white people, you know, those suits joining their clubs and, and knowing all their business. Uh, the Ferguson activist, you know, his killing sounds to me like a, a clan killing or a cop killing. Um, his logic tells me, you know, um, this young man had to be under FBI surveillance just from reading the book and looking at some of his his moves. I mean, I know they're watching him. It's not a lot of Malcolm X's and, and things these days. So they have plenty of people to go and watch, um, you know, whoever's in charge of, um, you know, his movement or, or the Black Panthers or whatever, the new Black Panthers, I should say. Um, but, you know, he was shot in the car.
know, he just died in a way that black people don't kill people. You know, if he was shot in the car and there's a bunch of missed shots, maybe. But um, this was done in a way to send a message. And um, when you hear burning, that usually applies to white people. Um, I could be wrong, but they have a history of burning black people and burning black people's things, uh, houses, churches, etc. And um, in fact, they burnt the other guy too there. And I wouldn't be surprised if those two things were um, related and the burnings were the cover-up. Um, I would like to say that the white girl probably came on to Odell Beckham. She was flirting, probably flashing him, you know, probably told him in his ear exactly what she wanted. And he said no, and she got offended and um, probably offended that he was looking at black women and non-white women as opposed to white women like herself. And she just couldn't figure out why this, she as a white woman wasn't the object of this black man's affection. And um, lastly, I just wanted to, um, this had nothing to do with the clips. Um, just wanted to give a little information. Um, I came across some information. I was listening to uh, a brother who named Robert X, and he um, mentioned this lady, and I did some research. And um, I just feel like um, this is very important. Uh, her name is uh, Martine Rothblatt. And um, she made it rich doing the Human Genome Project. Um, then um, she started this company, United Therapeutics, which is a bio biotechnology company that creates pharmaceutical drugs. Um, and she's best known for founder of Sirius Satellite Radio. Um, well, in 1982, she was a he. She married a black woman named Dina Acton, and they had four children together. They adopted another one. Um, they, in 1994, she, he decided she, she wanted to be a female, and this black woman, um, she stuck by, you know, the side as he did his um, transformation. But she recently started a new religion, um, and, I mean, this is just totally mind-boggling when you, when you look it up. Um, but she started this new religion, and it's based off of the fact that this black woman who was ill, she made a robot just like this black woman that you could talk to and interact, and they'll learn from other people. And the, the point of this whole religion is you can get this robot and live forever, um, it'll copy you, it'll, you know, pretty much you talk to it every day, it starts to think like you, and then um, your, your mind is inside of this robotic body. Um, it's called Bina 48, and I just think people should take a look at it. And um, I'll mute my line. Thank you very much. Other folks that we have not heard from, other folks who uh, dialed in with a hand up that we have not heard from. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, how everybody doing, man? This this key man, man from Houston. Um, I was just, I just, uh, well, you know, I like to reserve my my VGQ. Uh, 
I just really want to say, man, you know, it's very depressing, man. You know, and I, I know we black people, you know, one thing where one, the, the one thing where we can all agree to as fact is that we are the most mistreated of all the peoples on, on the planet, right? And then so you look at all the other you know, species and everybody, it's a, it's a food chain. So you got things in the water that eat the smaller animals and fishes, right? But I think, I think it's something bigger, man. I mean, because you, because now, you know, and I ain't going to say that it's good white people, but you got some people that's consciously aware or feel sorry, and well, I would say this: you got white people that the white people have been born into this something that's been prepared for them. They don't know how to change it. They don't know what to do. Nobody knows what to do. Not even just to help black people, but to fix life for everybody. I mean, when you look at it, we all here. We got a short stay here. It's supposed to be an enjoyed experience, you know, and that's what the average person can kind of understand. The whole every day, every day should be enjoyed. It's because everything what we got going on is put on us by somebody else, right? And I think it's something deeper than just white people because you really do when you get to looking at religions and all this stuff. It's like okay, and, and then. But people, we don't even know what we are or how we even got here, you know. And uh, and so I think it's kind of, but most definitely now, white supremacy is in full effect. They're running it. But, uh, you know, we kind of got to, we have to, and I can't even say that. I don't know who's supposed to solve it. And maybe everybody, and it's, it's kind of like uh, Mr. Fuller said, man, it's overwhelming, man. It's, it's kind of overwhelming because you, cause you get to reading and you're looking around and observing, and it's like it, it's, everything is really basic. Life supposed to be easy. I mean, because we, we born here, we get here. Nobody has to get here. We here. And it's like, okay, and then we fall into this system. Everything from the day we born is all about being a slave. School and everything is all about going to work to for somebody else. You know what I mean? And I and and I think somewhere we still missing it. And including me. I don't know, you know, but I was just thinking. You know what I mean? Like, because white people ain't that smart, man. They ain't smart at all. You know, they just got the power. They in control of everything. And, but you can see the ignorance because they ain't, they, they don't even know what to do. So, man, I'm up here in North Dakota, man. But for, now, black people have started migrating up here since this order came up here, right? But they got jails here. They've been locking their own people up, just like the news showing they losing deaths. You know, white people, you always got white people in jail. They hurt their own self. 
You know, they're very ignorant. You know what I mean? But it's like, it's something somewhere we ain't catching where we can grab a cup because, you know, I kind of think, okay, and I'm going to say this and then I'm going to cut off because, see, I know the one thing, like, when when I see, uh, say, for instance, you know, this for anybody, man, you walk in in this Walmart or something, you see a, a black and a white person together, you don't even really think nothing. You might don't even look at it or even notice it. I mean, you'll notice it, but, I mean, who 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 think anything about it? You know what I'm saying? But white people have a very, you know, they have these thoughts about different things. Everybody kind of different, but it's something, it's something there, man, something that we missing that we ain't grabbing. You know what I mean? And I think that white people are supposed to be here too, you know, because they here. And I don't think that they, like us, we all different. But everybody here, and we got to fix our, we got to fix, you know, man, let me mute my line. I'm going to listen out, though. Thank you. Thank you, too, guys. Appreciate Appreciate that. that. Thank you, sir. I'm going to get prompt, folks, about the metaphors. Seems like we're having difficulty with that. We could not use metaphors on the program uh, for the compensatory calling. That would be appreciated. No metaphors. Just be direct about what it is that we're saying and I also did want to make sure that I got in number one I have not seen any evidence that there are any white people on the planet who are genuinely interested in ending the system of white supremacy that would be one two I also haven't seen any evidence that white people are ignorant about what to do in terms of stopping the practice of racism I have seen and whites have come on this very program and verbalized If they wanted to, white people could end this problem quickly, like within 24 hours. Even admitted admitted white supremacist Jane Elliott stated that when she came on this program uh, back in 2010, she did two visits. But she stated that unequivocally, and we've had other whites who've called on the program and said the same thing. That is certainly the position that I have taken. If they wanted to, they could solve this problem very quickly. It is not rocket science. Just stop mistreating individuals who are not white. That's all they would have to do. I just haven't seen any, any evidence that they have an interest and or the will to do so. I could be in error. Uh, other folks uh, that we have not heard from, do you all have commentary you want to share? Uh, hang on one second because there are other hands up uh, people that have not shared I don't know if they're in a noisy environment where they're not able to share but we should have time sir uh, for once everybody who has not spoken once they've shared whatever thoughts or views that they have if you want to make an additional comment we should have time for that too Don't know why they're uh, lollygagging uh, for the day. Uh, We certainly are not going to do any extra (laughs) since people are on. I am looking at the switchboard. I do see the hands, and for whatever reason, they're just not uh, commenting. But we are not doing any extra, so we're not doing the slide in at the last minute. uh, And let me get my two, three minutes worth of of commentary in once we get ready to wrap things up. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. 
Okay. Hello to you, Gus. Um, uh, to you, Gus, the host, and to all the listeners. The reason I'm talking, I was just listening to what you were saying. You know, about people. I remember last night I was listening to you. I called in, and you were saying about that. And right at the end, somebody called in. So I just kind of chuckling what you were saying. But uh, this was a good show tonight. Um, just some comments about things. The um, Odell Beckham piece, uh, according to what I read, you know, they were sitting at the table. He just wasn't paying any attention to her. And so, you know, and then she's putting words in his, in his, putting, well, putting basic words in his mouth, you know. I mean, you know, it just, if you read the article, it's like this entitlement that, you know, I guess that she felt that she had, that, you know, hey, I'm sitting at the table with you, black man, you should be paying attention to me. And, um, you know, it becomes, you know, like, you know, like a joke, but it's really not a joke. And like the gentleman said that was doing the piece, that's, that's, that can be very dangerous, you know, that you're putting this word out there. And I think you said when you first read it, you know, you thought he was saying that, and then you come to find out this is her imagination running wild. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just so strange. It's, it's just, she, it's up to the point that I would like to believe it gets to the point that when black men, you know, somebody say, hey, we're going to sit you at the table with this white woman that you just need to say, no, that's all right. You know, I'll go sit over here in the corner, you know, because, I mean, you, what you have to do to protect yourself. I mean, I was just reading a story on Twitter earlier this evening of a um, football player at Auburn University in Alabama. Uh, this girl tells, gets in, sends an email to the coach, the coach saying that this guy abused her, the coach sends the email to the um oh my the title set the title nine or title ten personal campus coordinator and uh so that person gets in touch with the girl. So the girl tells the person you see how this she tells the coordinator that this it didn't happen. She lied. And she was saying that the coordinator basically was still trying to pursue this. And even the, but the way the story was written, is just like she was taking it off of herself, the young lady who lied, and kind of like putting it on the coordinator. Well, the coach, the coach let the guy go. He just listened. Then he tried to come with this story that, well, you know, since the coach was kind of like saying that um, it had nothing to do with this. There were just other things. And this just like, come on. So I was reading it, the, the story and they were on the site, and they were saying that the site would not, um, they would not identify who she was. And come to find out what she was mad about was that I guess she was in his room, and I guess they had a little argument, and he told her to get out. And he escorted her out, so she went and told the story, you know, told the slide. And um, I saw the, the um, I'm sorry, I saw it on Facebook because a Facebook friend of mine was like basically saying she, you know, telling her son, you really have to be careful about these women because, you know, this is something that's going on. There's another story of a, a, a white girl who is some football player and she was emailing her friend or texting her friends telling them to say he dragged me off the car you know, basically lying on this guy to try to get him in trouble. And I'm just like, wow. So, you know, it's just like, you know, black men, it's just like, you, you have to be careful. You you know, you can't just walk around me because the Odell Beckham story really speaks volumes. You know, of somebody sitting at a table minding his own business and a white woman who feels she's entitled 
And henceforth, you are supposed to pay attention to me. And since you don't pay attention to me, I'm going to put words to your mouth and put this out there. And then when she gets called on it, she deleted or tried to come up with this lame apology. So I, I just really thought that was something. The prison story, you know, it just, I think, I think last week, last week, Ron's made a statement about, it was something about a commercial uh, with a, a mattress and how the, uh, the, 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 you know, that, um, oh, what is it, the, with the uh, sheet. And then um, the people like, oh, you know, we, we, we haven't been counting you. We're just lying. And Roz was saying how they just lied. And um, the prison thing, when the woman said that um, the state put out or the governor's office or what have you, that the hostages were killed by the prisoners. And the woman said, even to this day, people still say that. The hostages killed them. When it comes to find out that the, um, you know, the, the guards and what have you killed, killed the hostages. And so, uh, you know, and, and she's saying, you know, even to this day, people still, you know, when it comes to prisons, you know, and there are people who feel that, you know, they need to be treated worse than animals. You need to give them rancid food. You need to give them that they're in prison. So I just, you know, thought that was the interesting story. And then, like somebody says, it's, what, 45 years later, and now you begin to get some of the truth, you know, because, you know, white people will lie, and they will lie and maintain their lies. I mean, we're still being told that Lee Harvey Oswald killed President Kennedy, you know. And um, while, you know, we know, I, I, I like to say we know that's not true, uh, and there's still things that, that still need to be told about that story. So, I mean, they will lie. I mean, that's just... That's liars lie, cheaters cheat. That's what they do, you know. And um, that's with something else. Oh. Um, and then just to, I, I can't think about stuff, but the piggyback on it, um, I do agree with you. I don't see nothing. White people do not want this system to change. No one, if a system is wholly in your favor, you are not going to change that system. I don't care what kind of lip service you give to people, which is, in my opinion, not some of our fault that we continue to listen to the lip service. But, you know, white people are not going to change the system. And I do agree that like you said, Jane Elliott said, they can change it if they want to. But no, no one's going to change the system where everyone is in their favor. And I just think there are things that as black people, I think that's something we have to realize. And we have to stop listening. And we just have to start doing for um you know, doing for ourselves. But if we're going to sit around here thinking that these people are going to help change the system, you know, to, you know, a system of justice where everybody is treated just, <laughs> you know, where everybody is treated just, but that's not going to happen, you know, because I think also, too, we have to re realize that there's a great psychological effect in the things that go on in white people's heads. Just like uh, it was your program one time, Mr. Wynn, your program that you talk about, basically how uh, the the enjoyment, this, that's my word, that white people get off looking at um, uh, continual coverage of, like, the murder of Mike Brown, the murder of Trayvon Martin, you know, to see black people getting killed in the streets and stuff like that, and they can watch that stuff over and over, and media can loop that over and over, and um, they're getting some kind of, you know, having some kind of homoerotic sensations and things with this. So I think we just have to, we have to, black people have to, um, we just have to think. We have to think and um, stop falling for the okie doke. And I just want to say that uh, if Thomas of New York, if he's still listening, could he um, 
give that lady's name again because I really would like to look that up, what he was talking about, and I'll read my line with that. Thank you. I'm sure. My name is um, Mark, Martine Rothblatt. Martine, it was Martine, but she changed it to Martine, and her last name is Rothblatt, R-O-C-H-B-L-A-T-T. And you'll find her if you look up Ferris Radio, Wikipedia, it'll come right up. Okay, thank you. Grand. Other folks that we have not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free. Can I be here? Yes, ma'am. Hello, Gus, everyone. Greetings. This is Puff. Uh, I was listening to the uh, clips there, but uh, something that was not involved in your clips, uh, if this Lena Dunham, she feel like she's projecting her, you know, sexualization on onto uh, other black men. Uh, don't nobody want black or white. Don't nobody want that milky, nasty body. Uh, uh, I can't even explain it, man. Non-shaped, having, no, nobody wants that. Anyway, uh, you know, if, if that incident, you know, speaks, speaks, uh, you know, chapters or whatever, that Chris Brown incident that just, that happened last week speaks volumes. Uh, this, this Chris Brown incident, that took the case, I mean, that, that, that's, man, that's a case in point of, of, uh, uh, the power that, uh, white women have over black men, just the accusation. Now, I'm telling you now, a white woman's word can put helicopters in the air, wasting gas. Oh, just a word or something. Now, can you imagine if he, well, he didn't even do nothing to her. He put her out of his house. It's his house. He don't even, it's it just, the whole thing just go to show you that black people don't really have no rights, no matter if they millionaires or if they a level above food stamps. Irregardless, it shows you the, the power of white supremacy that this man could get arrested and taken out of his home for putting somebody out of his home that he don't want there. And California is, I think, an open carry state. But, you know, he was a fella, so he can't, he can't carry a pistol. But even she, in her witness statement, said that he, he didn't pull a gun on her. He said somebody that was showing some jewelry was, was, uh, was doing something. And and went off on her, and rightfully so. He had millions of dollars worth of uh, diamonds there, and so the whole thing, man, just is is a case in point of you know the white people can ruin your life in five minutes. It didn't even take five minutes, and then they found the text. Then it took later. Now he got to pay Mark Garagos which I'm sure is right up there neck and neck with uh, Robert Shapiro as far as billing rates. This man don't come cheap. And just like some, one of the other callers mentioned, not everybody have that kind of money to get that kind of legal representation uh, for that. So 
it, it, it only take five minutes. Uh, in that in that case, white people can ruin your life in five minutes. It didn't even take five minutes. Uh, the the attorney showed that that girl had texts. She texted somebody else and, and said that she was going to set him up. And it's still wasting gas with helicopters and stuff on her. I mean, my life. Go ahead. The next person. Just wanted to insert really quick, just for accuracy's sake, we did include an audio clip on the uh, incident with Odell Beckham Jr. That was the last audio clip that was played. Uh, and the case that was mentioned by uh, our female caller in Ohio, it's uh, Javon Robinson is the black football player who was tossed from Auburn's football team uh, over these allegations. Uh, suspect that it was a white female student who made these allegations that uh, he raped her or did something sexual uh, and did admitted that this was not the case, that she lied and they still removed him from the team. Uh, I did post one of the reports uh, it's titled Female Student Admits to an Incredible Lie That Got Auburn Football Player Kicked Off Team. Uh, you can check it out at the Facebook page. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, did you have commentary? Hold on, can I be heard? Your volume is very low. Very low. Okay, v- just a second here. Mm-hmm. Um, is that better? Yes, sir. Okay. So, basically, um, to go along with uh, the last caller and um, kind of what seems to be a theme for tonight, um, I wanted to start my contribution by mentioning um, that along with the Lena Dunham incident, um, the person that was on the uh, interview with her um, for that, I think it was a a broadcast or it was a, a blog Um, I think it was called Letters for Lenny. Um, This was an interview with uh, Lena Dunham and Amy Schumer. And Amy Schumer uh, is a comedian who has been noted for uh, stealing jokes and uh, telling um, just uh, really crude racist jokes. Um, She was noted for making a statement earlier this week that uh, suggested she was a believer in this uh, white supremacist talking point that um, black people are uh, somehow statistically more likely to engage in uh, sexual harassment. And um, this is just kind of the latest in a string of very um, racist actions by Amy Schumer. And I I just want to note that if any listener uh, has any doubt that this person, Amy Schumer, is a racist, I think that um, one thing that I've noted is that there's a number of non-white people out there that have this idea that um, Amy Schumer is uh, somehow cool or somehow down or whatever. Um, But I just wanted to note that um, this is a uh, suspected racist that um, even dates uh, a man that is online in blackface. So, I mean, like, that is how racist this person gets uh, with her functions. All of her jokes seem to uh, revolve around um, demonizing non-white males for uh, 
being in her mind sexual predators um and this is just goes along with a theme that we've been discussing all night that hey um white women are instrumental in uh initiating um tremendous uh incidences of uh racism white supremacy and um something else that i would like to know is that uh along with uh amy schumer uh telling all of these uh uh crime stat um allusions you know this comes on the heels of everything that we've seen revolving around the terrorism going against non-white people uh i i think it should be noted that uh dylan roof also made mention of uh, supposedly uh, non-white males raping white females. And then um, you can go back to, I think, Donald Trump. He's uh, running, he started his campaign with that call of, hey, um, non-white males are coming here and raping white females. I think the governor of uh, Maine was on the record for making this, um, I guess, illusion that, hey, non-white males are coming to their state selling drugs and impregnating uh, white females. So this is just a theme that is, uh, seems to be constant within the system of white supremacy, and it should be noted. Um, and these people are not down. I don't know what you would make, uh, what would make you think that just off, um, just off the merits of them being a a white woman. I think that's what's going on in a lot of these cases. Um, also, uh, something that has been alluded to um, is that a lot of racism is being automated and is being um, put to robotic applications. Uh, Bina 48 is definitely one of the most peculiar creations that I've ever witnessed. It seems that they are trying to replace black people with robots who are black and the fact that this is a robot that's based on a woman who is a a non-white female that is married to a white male or a white female or a i'm i'm confused on that part but um i think that they are programming these robots to be black people who may have uh distaste for other black people, uh, oddly enough. So that might be that might be one of the end goals of that mission. But CNN reported earlier this week that they um, that they issued a report that said math is racist. That was the headline, and I think that was some, a clickbaity t- uh, a title that could be called clickbait. But it said that math is racist, and it was basically discussing all of the ways that white supremacists have automated white supremacy in the form of algorithms. And they apply these to different, um, to different applications like uh, personality examinations. And I know about this personally because I, I was responsible for selling software that was, um, at the end of the day, uh, engineered to get around OFCCP compliance standards through the usage of these tests. I didn't realize that until later, but still, 
Um, that's something that is going on. The news is basically, I guess, boasting about this and, and advertising this now. And, um, and that's uh, going on. And then following that, on the heels of that, The Guardian, I believe, published an article about um, a beauty contest that was judged by AI robots. And the end result was that all of the winners of this beauty contest were all people that could be classified as white, um, or there was one that was non-white and was uh, perceivably Asian. But the rest were all very white, and all of the um, standards that were programmed into this uh, into this machine was basically done by Eastern European uh, scientists, and I suspect they may be white supremacists. And, uh, of course, their algorithms have come out to have racist outcomes. So that's something that we should be, keep, be paying close attention to, is the fact that, hey, they have this down to the math that, um, that they're coming out with. So a lot of new technologies may have uh, racist applications inbuilt into them. And also, I just want to make a uh, note on that note. You know, there's been a number of different examples of facial recognition software um, not being able to detect uh, faces of people who are classified as black or people who have darker skin tones. So that's something that should be noted as well. Um, and with that said, I guess I'll mute my line. Thank you so much. For sure, for sure. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we have not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free. Anybody that we missed uh, who had a hand up who has not been able to comment at all? Not sure if that is a uh, response or not. Um, before I uh, double check, there was a person who wrote in about the pipeline situation uh, going on in North Dakota. Um, I was in the process of listening, uh, getting more information, uh, listening to some of the radio reports about it. And then as I was checking, I saw that President Obama uh, made an order that they were uh, ordering them to stop the drilling process that was happening in North Dakota. If people were paying attention, there was there were a lot of protests uh, this week. Uh, Non-white people were bitten by dogs and arrested. I even saw today that my BFF, Amy Goodman, they have an arrest warrant uh, issued for her uh, in North Dakota. She was there, I think, Wednesday, uh, sometime in the middle of the week, uh, covering everything. Did folks uh, catch what was going down uh, this week with the protests in North Dakota? Have any views on that within the context? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, absolutely. That was um, quite amazing. You know, what my views was initially is, you know, look at the fake Indians. <laughs> look, what, look what's going on with them. But I feel bad for them. Um, but from what I understand, that they have the legal right to kick them off because they sold that land or somehow the government confiscated it. However, um, when I saw them sticking the dogs on them, I mean, that was just like, I thought that Birmingham, you know, type, you know, flashback, like, wow, I mean, they're going to the same playbook. 
Um, I, I mean, it's 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 racism, white supremacy. Uh, I I don't know what 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 other what other thing I could say about it. Um, I I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. I think they think all of the so-called Native American land is theirs, and um, they eventually plan on getting it from them eventually, um, at some point. And I'll keep my line. They were protesting here in uh, Seattle, Washington. As well. When I say they, I mean uh, whites. Now, there is a substantial population of individuals who are classified as uh, natives, uh, indigenous, whichever, first people, whichever uh, term you want to use. But most of these folks are, are non-white. There are a substantial population of them here in Washington State. But the images that I saw that were on the news of the people that were out protesting here in Washington State, they were uh, protesting uh, against different banks that are funding this drilling operation uh, in North Dakota. Uh, it looked like it was a lot of white people out running around in the street, which happens typically uh, if there's anything. Like when the Ferguson protests happened and they protested here, it was mostly white people. That tends to be the way things go. Uh, so seeing that uh, and even some other images where it looked like there were a substantial number of whites who were out uh, jumping up and down on this, it kind of reminded me of the report about Black Lives Matter in the UK where they were out protesting at the airport uh, where they included that it seemed like it was a substantial number of whites if not a majority of whites were out doing this under the banner of Black Lives Matter uh, where I thought you know this could just be uh, whites that are out you know causing some distraction or what have you they get really uh, excited and want you to be really upset about things where they say oh this is the environment and this is going to mess things up for the environment that sort of thing uh, where in my view it's it's just it is a total lie and it's it is disingenuous because if you are a white person and you want to get that riled up about you know we, we can't have all these pollution uh, we can't have all this pollution and we cannot toxify the land or the water or the air, what have you, then we should be equally, if not more so, like infinitely more so upset and outraged about abusing, terrorizing other black people. And I just don't see that. So that um, it had a big impact on my view of what was transpiring in North Dakota, because I was thinking that there were a lot of whites that were out doing this. And this was just obfuscating and uh, distracting away from the global enterprise of white supremacy. But I did see the non-white people being bitten by dogs and, and that going down. Um, so I said I maybe just need to take another look and, and get some more of the reports where they're actually non-white people that are out and protesting and are involved in this uh, sincerely. But I did see, unfortunately, I did see quite a bit of, of people that I think are racist out clowning and joining in this as well. Yeah, I was going to say about that, um, Definitely, white people are going to come out and you know have their fun uh, while other non-white people are being mistreated. But um, when I saw the the, uh, the dogs attacking the non-white people, it just made me think that even though uh, people who are non-black and non-white are lighter lighter or less melanated than we are, essentially all non-white people are just variations of black people to white people and at some point no matter how light you are they're going to show you that you're just a nigga too and to me that it's like um like thomas was saying it did kind of take me back to you know the days in the south with the dogs and the fire hoses and um it's just you know in that particular moment they were getting the nigga treatment and i think it's a great example for other people who are non-black non-white to understand that anything that is not white in the mind of white people are just variations of black people. And at some point you're going to get that treatment. It's just that 
the vast majority of the time, it is the darkest of them all that get treated the most brutally out of everyone else. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Okay, just wanted to say, um, thinking about the gentleman in um, Ferguson that was killed, Darren, I think his name is Darren. And, you know, I, I just happened to be one day I was sitting at work going through uh, YouTube, and I came across this interview, and the interview, the interview that he did, the interview was done with Irritated Jimmy. And, you know, I just, you know, and I just wanted to say, he talked to him, and so he was talking, in the interview, he was talking about, I mean, you know, he got killed, and that's how I say interview. It's like, because mm, yeah, I think that we all know that, you know, this is this is some law enforcement took care of him, you know. And um, in this interview, though, that he did with the irritated Jimmy, he was talking about what was going on, like, you know, right after the time Mike Brown was executed. And they were just, Things, I mean, it was just like, I don't know, maybe it's just shocking to me, you know. And he was talking about how the LGBTQ, the, you know, homosexuals, because he mentioned the Ray McKeeson, and he said how they were, they were coming down there, well, they were coming to uh, this area, Ferguson, and he said they were making big money. He talked about, he, he talked about how whites were coming in, starting fights, you know, and he said they were making big money. And he talked about some guy that he knew, a black guy, and it was something about renting this apartment. He says he goes to this apartment. The guy there said he goes to this apartment. This black guy is there with this white guy. He rented this apartment. I guess for this white guy to come to town. And he said the black guy was telling him, he said, this white guy is making money off of this. He said there said that the black guy was sleeping on like a phone or when these these type of mattresses, you know, that you blow up. He says the white guy was sleeping in the bed. And then he says somebody, the black guy said he had to take the white guy to the grocery store. He said this guy had something like $9,000 on his card. And he said this guy was just sitting up there, always on that laptop. So he was just making money. And so then the guy there was saying about how the, it was some guy they knew they went to the UN. He said, then that guy come back, and he was writing rap songs, and he was, like, saying that these people were making money. And he said the people who lived in the area were just basically, like, getting just messed over. I mean, I was sitting there listening to that interview, I was like, wow, you know. And then I know, I, I kept looking, I said, this is the guy that just got killed. But I just, you know, I just wanted to put that out there because, I mean, if he, you know, was speaking truth to power, it's just so sad that he's dead. But it's almost like when I got to see why they killed him. And then probably, you know, because I guess that interview took place a little bit after Mike Brown was, assass- you know, executed. So, and that's been, what, a couple of years, you know. And so now, you know, I know he was just killed, you know, a few days ago. So I'm, if he's you know, still keeping up with his, his activism, then the, whoever killed him is just like, this was somebody that had to be done away with. And I was reading the article right before he got killed where it said that um, something about he was out with his brothers and, the, and the, his brother and the police stopped him and was, you know, kind of like telling them, be careful, uh, you know, kind of like a warning, you know, to him. And then I know um, I was looking at some pictures today on, on Facebook and they were talking about, they had pictures of uh, the scene with this fire, the car fire, you know, and it was just a lot of stuff left back there, like a door, 
you know, there was just some other stuff there. And so the question was like, well, what kind of investigation is this? And I remember I wrote on there, I said, it's a non-investigation. You know, they know what happened to him. That law enforcement uh, down in the area know what happened to him, know who did it to him. So, you know, you clean up the mess, you leave some other stuff there, you just go on, you know, they know what happened. But I just wanted to say that, and um, this was a thing, too, the gentleman that was talking about Lena Dunham and, um, ooh, that racist, uh, that racist, I ain't going to call her suspected racist, I'm going to call her a racist, Amy Schumer. And um, I was, um, I saw a little piece of a clip. And there's a, I have a Facebook page, she's a professor, and she was saying how she had been writing some articles about Amy Schumer, who's basically like using feminism, trying to, you know, I'm a white man, I'm a feminist, but actually what she's saying is just racist. And um, she had written this article, and she had a, a film clip of, of her, Amy Schumer, her stand-up thing, and I mean, just, I mean, just. You can't any other way just racist. And I remember I was just saying, I said, you know, we wouldn't even, you know, probably nobody would even heard about who this fat white girl is. If not because her cousin, if I was thinking, is the senator from New York, Charles Schumer. And I'm like, this is probably, this, this fat white girl come on the scene. This, you know, one day he just shows up, Amy Schumer. She and Lena Dunham, just two of two fat white girls. I'm trying to be nice about this. I mean, just racist. And then you want to try to talk about you're a feminist. And it hurts me because black women will run to that. Oh, yeah, I'm a feminist. I'm a feminist, too. And I'm like, <laughs> it's just total opposite. So what the gentleman was saying about it, you know, I thought it like he is 100% correct. And um, thank you. I'll mute myself. Thank you. Um, I, I would, uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. This is Ken Silver from Chicago. Um, I'd also like to note um, that, yeah, Amy Schumer is Chuck Schumer's, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer's cousin, I believe. And if you recall, it was her movie, Trainwreck, that was the scene of a mass shooting that took place. And she was um, subsequently instrumental in uh, messaging a campaign to um, uh, do away with, uh, I think, uh, semi-automatic, uh, weapon sales or something like that. Or, um, but yeah, it should be noted that yes, he does have very, very powerful connections. Um, and I suspect that there are, um, greater forces at work that are beyond comedy, um, that are definitely, uh, assisting her presence uh, within the media. And it's just very peculiar to me um, in light of a lot of developments within her career, uh, including revelations that she does, in fact, steal jokes, um, that so many notable comedians are came to her defense or um, did not excoriate her in the same manner that, that um, other joke thieves like uh, a non-white uh, comedian, uh, Carlos Mencia, uh, got treated. So, I'm, I, you know, all of these things should be noted about uh, this um, comedian, um, Amy Schumer. And uh, I guess I, I'll mute my mic. Had to obligatory make sure that I get in since his name was mentioned. Uh, irritated Genie, according to his own record, his own testimony, not Gusty Renegade, uh, admitted 
being employed for Homeland Security. Not TSA or any other derivatives, Homeland Security. That should always be noted and brought up, mentioned uh, when he is referenced. Uh, anyone that we missed uh, who has not commented, anyone that has not commented at all, wanted to make sure they get in. If other folks had commentary, they wanted to make sure they got in as well. That is fine. Just make sure you do not wait till the last minute. Robert Hurd? Yes, sir. Yeah, I think uh, um, I had never heard that um, EM, she was a Chuck Schumer's cousin before. But, um, I mean, I just look at her last name, and you look at who runs Hollywood, and uh, who could get you on television. And um, just like Jerry Steinfeld and a, a lot of other corny white comedians, they, they become big stars. So that doesn't shock me at all. Um, what I wanted to say was the, the name of that um, religion is called Terrorism. Terrorism and what, what um, T-E-R-A-S-E-M. And um, what stands out about this religion is um, the black man, how their half-son, half-black son is uh, essentially like the pope of this religion, the head person, and I just thought that was very interesting. Uh, also, I just wanted to mention a story that wasn't brought out, and, um, you know, to me, I, I find um, racism and everything. Uh, I just would love to know how does a bank like Wells Fargo have fired 55, 5,400 people and no one go to jail? Black people are putting jail every day for minuscule times, not going into people's bank account and giving them a big credit card and things. And I just find that as a huge act of racism, um, selective prosecution. Um, white people get treated one way in the criminal justice system, and um, the blueprint for treating black people is we always end up with a mandatory minimum or all white jury, and it never works out in our favor. Um, but 5,400 people are fired for stealing money and no one goes to jail. And um, imagine any black organization where that could happen. I'm with my mom. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, person at 0821-0821, did you have commentary? Yeah, I did. I wanted to go back to the Amy Schumer uh, and feminism comment. Is that okay? Yes, ma'am. All right. I wanted, what I wanted to, to add to the conversation is that for all their talk about feminism and being independent, let's face it, without white supremacy, these white women would not have the benefits that they have to even call themselves feminists. So when, you know, when they make remarks like this, when they talk about their independence, when they talk about gender bending and all this other stuff, Lena Dunham wearing a tuxedo and not getting attention for it, that all of that is part of the white supremacist agenda. And all this talk about not being not relying on men, but where are they getting all this white power from? They're getting it from white men. So it's time for all of us, especially us non-white women, to start calling them out. Because if it weren't for their men, they wouldn't have these privileges. And to also be sure, with absolute certainty, white men only give white women certain amount of power the type of power that keeps the wealth in their families and in their white community. So they're not breaking any barriers under the context of feminism. 
All right, right on. That that was all you wanted to share? Mm-hmm. All right on. Right on. Uh, before I nab any other folks, I did want to mention, uh, I thought just one word that was used when they in the report where they were talking about uh, cannabis legalization uh, and Trump's stance, Hillary Clinton's stance, and if that's going to be an issue uh, as we move towards November when Hillary Clinton was quoted as saying that she was looking at the states where they have legalized as laboratories. Uh, I've pointed out pretty regularly for years now, actually, that that sort of language, laboratories, experiments, that those are the type of words that they have consistently used with all of this, and I think that that is very important. Uh, I am not... uh, it is not my view that whites are, are ignorant or stupid. I do not have that view at all. You cannot be stupid and maintain global domination for a long, long time, which they mm-hmm. clearly have. You cannot do that if you are a dunce. Um, they do experiments. Uh, and I think all of this with everything about the drugs, the heroin in the libraries, legalization of cannabis, less legalized, all, mm-hmm. all of this is directly connected to racism, white supremacy. Uh, I think more of this, I don't know, I guess the people that are in the states that are going to be voting on legalizing cannabis, if we have people that are in Arizona, California, Maine, Massachusetts, uh, or Nevada, those are the five states that are voting on legalization, uh, how this is going. I would bet the farm that this is going to pass in California, so that would be another one to check off the people who years ago said that they're not doing any legalization in states where they have uh, significant population of black people. I don't think anybody would say that there are no black people in California. Um, certainly you have black people in D.C. where it has been legalized as well. But um, I would just pay attention to that when they're saying that these, these are experiments. These states are laboratories where we are just experimenting with how we are going to use drugs, legal or no, to help us strengthen our domination over dark people. That's my view of all of this. I could be in error. Uh, other folks have commentary. We have less than 30 minutes to go. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I was just thinking about um, what the, uh, I believe it was the previous female caller was speaking about in regards to feminism. And it made me think of a great article I read. If, if um, anyone wants to find it, you can search for it by putting in um, Black Women Feminism, uh, Gloria Steinem and the CIA. And they basically discussed the history of uh, the fact that feminism, especially for Black people, was facilitated via the CIA giving Gloria Steinem millions of dollars to essentially Mm -hmm. indoctrinate black women into feminism to facilitate the destruction of the black family. So anytime I hear any black person, male or female, say that they're a feminist, I just say, well, wow, you really just don't know history. And, um, you know, I leave it at that. But ultimately, you know, it was created as a ruse to facilitate what we're seeing today, the destruction of the black family, the propagation of antisexual behavior, something that's normal. All of the stuff we're seeing today began then. And in the article, they give like a lot of great facts about everything. They give details about her relationship with the CIA. So I think it's something people want to look into, especially um, those people who might uh, call themselves black feminists, whether male or female. I just think it's a history that we need to be fully aware of so that we know when we're engaging in this sort of activity, we're doing something that's completely um, anti our own selves. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Can I be heard? <clears throat> yes, sir. Just want to uh, give, uh, based on this story I heard with the, uh, I believe it was a black firefighter who was assaulted. Am I correct? 
In one of the clips. Yes, in Missouri. He was called a uh, nigger and assaulted with a cane by a 70-year-old white man. Uh, in, in my younger days, I, I, I kind of like wish uh, I was that black firefighter with that old, with that white man with the cane. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it happens more than probably reported uh for various reasons uh for the most part a lot of the uh emergency calls that take place the police are also responding to it so in that case it sometimes doesn't happen but let's say it's a medical emergency in some cases the police are not necessarily uh responding and from there there may be uh problems uh I've had uh, some uh, violent experiences. One in particular, this is about maybe about 25 years ago, so it's, it's kind of like hard to remember. But I, what I do remember, uh, it was something like three, four o'clock in the morning, and uh, uh, the police were on the call, but they were not in a hurry to go inside the house. I was kind of like. Uh, well, I wasn't in my first year, but it was something like maybe third year on and kind of aggressive and went into the house and white male, uh, no clothes on, bloody all over. Uh, and uh, I went I went to uh, uh, get some uh, swab to be able to see uh, where he's where the source of his bleeding. And while I did that, he took the opportunity to get a well he was lying in a he was he was laying around in a in a bunch of uh glass shards, some of them as long as a, something like a foot long and when I took the turn to turn my back uh he actually came at me and stabbed me in the back uh with this shard, but at the same time, I noticed him coming and turned and and tried to break his arm in the in the process. Uh, but, uh, the only thing it did was nick my, uh, I was wearing a jumpsuit. It kind of like nicked the jumpsuit and it was the, the, the scratch was kind of like superficial, but, uh, it does happen a lot, uh, as far as that concern. And, uh, so you have to be, you know, careful. And even, I mean, I've, I've had it for this with non-white black people also, uh, for, for whatever reason, uh, it may not be the patient, him or herself, but it's maybe some somebody else uh, in the general vicinity of an apartment. And uh, in this particular case, uh, uh, a brick was thrown uh, with the intent to let me know that they are around uh, because I'm pretty sure if the person wanted to hit me with the brick, I wasn't that far away from them. Uh, unless there's something really wrong with their ability to throw a, a brick. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, uh, it happens, uh, happens quite often. I was just thinking about, uh, my, my past connected with, uh, this incident involving that. Uh, and I would have, I would have actually gotten, it'd have been my opportunity to really get physical with a white person in that particular case. Uh, oh yeah. One, one more particular case was one of these situations, quote unquote, exclusive, uh, golf course. Uh, of where where white people still had a uh, large membership 
uh, in an area where white people had moved out is a approximately uh, about maybe five minutes, five minutes south of the Dolphin Stadium uh, on the same major street. And uh, uh, we would get calls over there. And it was obvious on the shift that I was on because they had a lot of non-white black males. And they were not pleased. They were not pleased with us on a lot of the calls of us going uh, to uh, the calls and all they see was, was black males. And uh, most of these black males that I work with at this particular time were not confused on racism, white supremacy. And I can recall this particular incident, uh, we stopped service since they didn't want to, they didn't want, they didn't want to, uh, they didn't act like they wanted to appreciate our service. So we stopped service. We just sat there and waited and waited until, uh, uh, in this particular case, it was something that, that, uh, uh, required an ambulance. We didn't do anything to just sit there since they didn't want the service. You know, as far as that concern, and so we just sat there and and, and didn't uh, apply the service. And in that case, if 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 if, if the patients the patients are whatever being belligerent, and 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 there's some uh, means that uh, something uh, uh, physical could happen, and I mean nobody's going to come at me and, and say that I have to apply some kind of service to that person. And uh, myself and a few others, we, we, we just sat down, sat down and let other people do the work as far as that concerned. Those are some of my uh, uh, remembrance of uh, things similar to what that firefighter went through. Thank you. Appreciate that. I thought with that piece with the, the black firefighter in Missouri uh, who was terrorized, assaulted, called a nigger, um, in the clip, I thought it was telling that they moved away from this was a blatant act of white supremacy, white terrorism, to we need to get these hate crime bills to include attacks on enforcement officers and firefighters and all of this other talk that's been going on for the last two months or so, maybe even a little longer than that, and saying that there needs to be uh, hate crime penalties if someone uh, attacks or, or harms an enforcement officer, police officers in particular, uh, and some of the legislation, the Blue Lives Matter uh, legislation that they passed, including them in hate crimes, which I thought I thought that could have been even a subtle act of white supremacy racism right there, uh, because I think people have pointed out consistently that in most states they already have penalties in place, severe additional penalties if someone mistreats, violates, particularly uh, police officers, enforcement officials, they already have that so that you already know that you're going to get stiffer punitive action if you, you know, violate, assault, harm uh, a police officer. So I thought that was was, uh, important. Uh, Could be another act of racism there. Uh, We also had a uh, listener who wrote in the first piece news uh, clip that we played this evening about Make It Awkward, this campaign uh, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. They had the mayor who's a uh, suspected racist, Don Iveson, uh, on the program. I thought it was uh, significant. He divulged that he is married to a non-white person uh, and has, as he stated, quote-unquote, biracial children or uh, children that are racially ambiguous. It can be difficult to pick out what they're, if they are classified as white or if they're classified as non-white. A listener wrote in, he said, uh, the gentleman being interviewed, who was Mayor Don Iveson, 
was using terms like casual racism and awkward conversation, which I believe did not accurately describe what they were talking about as a function of white supremacy, given the context of the conversation. Number one, can you define what is casual racism? Number two, I think uh, Don Iveson had divulged that he and uh, the black male that they started with, he was doing a public service announcement for how what a wonderful city Edmonton is and some whites drove by and said "Uh, the niggers are coming, the niggers are coming I played that last week uh, that both Mr. Iveson and uh, this black male, Jesse, I'm just forgetting his last name that they both uh, are in it seems tragic arrangements Uh, Don Iveson is married to a non-white female her name is Sarah Chan and uh, Jesse, I forget his last name, I can tell you in a second. I think, unfortunately, this black male is in some sort of tragic arrangement with a white woman. Uh, but it seems they both have, uh, I think the common term, unfortunately, is quote-unquote biracial uh, children. And he tried to offer that as some evidence of his sincerity. And he has some stake in addressing these issues. Uh, other folks have commentary they want to make sure they get in. We have about 10 minutes left. I have a question. Yes, sir. Um, just referred to the relationship with the black male and the Chinese female or the Asian female as a tragic arrangement. So does that also apply under the definition of a tragic arrangement? Uh, it was a black the, male with a non-white female. It was the white mayor who is in a tragic arrangement with a non-white female, Sarah gotcha, Chan. Gotcha, the, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Hope I was not confusing Sorry. there. No. no, 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 no. I thought it was a black male with a white uh, Chinese female. I was like, wow. But, oh, I got you 100% now. Right on, right on. Oh, folks. Oh, I wanted... Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I I wanted to chime in because I was reading earlier today that um, John Hinckley Jr. is now being released from a, a mental hospital in uh, Washington, D.C., and that's the um, the white guy who shot Ronald Reagan um, in the 80s. And I thought about it, I was like, wow, this is very interesting. When, you sh- when you're white and you shoot a president, you get to go to a mental hospital, and they release you after a number of years. When you're white and you assassinate a senator and murder eight other black people in the church, you get a Burger King meal and protection. You also get forgiven by some of the family members of your victims. And when you're black and unarmed, just walking down the street doing nothing, you get bullets, whether it's from a killer cop or a George Zimmerman, and it's, you know, considered a justifiable homicide. So I just find that to be an interesting um, example of how white supremacy works. And that's it. Thank you. Just quick uh, note to uh, attach uh, the Dallas police chief, uh, David Brown, a lot of people saw him during the shooting uh, that took place earlier in the summer with the uh, five enforcement officials who uh, were reportedly killed. Uh, and they said that the gunman allegedly, uh, Micah Xavier Johnson, he retired uh, within the last few days. I thought that was noteworthy. Uh, they did give this black male a lot of attention uh, during all of that. Um, it's one other, it's one other comment I was going to get in. I'll make sure I include it before, uh, we get ready to wrap things up. Other anything else folks wanted to make sure they address? Oh, uh, the Attica situation. Uh, if folks are interested, I know we have uh, film fans. Uh, one of Samuel L. Jackson's better works, Against the Wall, is about 
the Attica Uprising. Obviously, it is not a documentary with Samuel L. Jackson in it, but it is pretty good. Uh, you should be able to find it online. They have it in parts on YouTube. I think it might be missing like one part, maybe an hour into the film, and then it has the rest of it. But I'm sure I'm sure you should be able to find it uh, online or wherever else. Uh, but it is uh, it is pretty interesting. Against the Wall is the name of it, starring Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, that movie with Clarence Williams the third in it. I'm sorry. That's the movie with Clarence Williams the third in it. Uh, give me a moment and I will let you know. Yes, he is in it as well. Yes. Yeah, that's a good movie. Hey, Gus. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I just wanted to add in, you know, while we're talking about racist white women, uh, Amy Schumer uh, and Lena Dunham, you must also include the racist Klan member, Chelsea Handler. All three are nasty, body-milky, bad-body, nasty-shaped Klan members. Just wanted to add that in there. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, to uh, go along with that last comment, um, uh, Chelsea Handler, um, in her book, uh, refers to her uh, black boyfriend as, uh, I believe, uh, throughout the book as Tyrone. And I don't believe that that was his name. So that's... Uh, about uh, um, <laughs> that says something about Kelsey Handler, and then on top of that, um, I believe she was involved in some sort of a publicity stunt whereby uh, she and uh, uh, the rapper Fifty Cent, um, Curtis Jackson, uh, he and her uh, were purported to be in some sort of a tragic arrangement together as well. Um, it seemed very tacky in the way that this was presented. Um, I, it was perplexing to me because it didn't seem like it was uh, presented as some something genuine. It, it seemed like it was uh, um, the intro to some sort of skit or a bit or um, some sort of uh, joke. So um, that's something to note about uh, Chelsea Handler. That's a, a significant part of her act is uh, revolves around um, engaging in uh, gutter sex with uh, non-white males. So that's definitely something um, um, to note about that uh, character in this trifecta of uh, comedic white women feminism that we've been discussing uh, throughout the night. Thank you. Did folks... Um, also, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to chime in, too, just to um, uh, just give a maximum respect to um, Peter Tosh. The anniversary of his death is actually tomorrow, September 11th. And um, there's a great documentary on him called Stephen Razor Red X that anyone can find on YouTube. It's very, very incredible. And it basically, a lot of it's in his own words. He recorded himself before he died, and he was um, he knew he was going to be killed, so he basically started recording himself um, months before he was killed. And essentially the... Um, it follows his, his story. It's almost like a bio, autobiography, and they play a lot of the um, the tapes that he actually recorded of himself. Um, so it's a really brilliant documentary. I would say the best one ever done on him. And I just wanted to put that out there as well. Thank you. For sure. For sure. 
Uh, did anyone see what uh, the report, Beyonce's uh, sister, Solange, Solange, I think she uh, made a report within the last few hours, 48 hours or so, uh, that she was at a concert uh, in Louisiana and some white women, pattern, uh, some white women were yelling at her. I guess she was standing at this concert, which seems to be, you know, a typical thing. Uh, but these white women were upset and they threw a lime at her and were telling her to sit down and get out of the way. I don't know if they recognized her or not, or even if they cared, uh, but they apparently were yelling at her and she talked about how this is why black people uh, do not feel safe uh, in what she termed white spaces. Did anybody catch that or have any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, this lady was at a craft work concert. You know, the, the uh, group that made up those beats they were at a Kraftwerk concert, and uh, Solange typed out that they may have been like four. It's like it was like less than twenty black people and thousands of white people, and so she was standing up dancing because they have sampled hip hop artists have sampled a lot of Kraftwerk's singles. That's a German group in the eighties, but you know. She was dancing, and they not only did they throw it at, at Solana, they threw it at her son also. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes, um, like Puff said, I did see that, and I noticed, too, because what I saw on Twitter, well, what the article I saw, it was like, she's 30, and these white women were older, so that, you know, that, that says something, too. And just like you say, that right there, and then the, uh, I think it was Ron who was saying about how um, things that white people could do and how the law enforcement would slap their wrist if they do that. But, you know, if, if we're out walking down the street minding our business and, you know, somebody, white police officer have a bad day, we could be shot up and be made to look like Swiss cheese before it's all over with. And, that, and I say all that to say, and I think really if black people, I don't like this term waking up. I remember one time somebody said that, and I remember you would say, how do we determine that? But I, I mean, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I just, we got to pay attention. We got to focus and stuff. That, because basically, if anybody remembers now, the systems are not working for us. The Supreme Court has, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, which we shouldn't even have to have that today, but we see after the Supreme Court did that, we saw what Alabama did, closed down all their uh, DMVs, and, I mean, it was crazy. All, though they closed all the DMVs in areas that had large black populations, so you wouldn't be able to get an ID so that you could register to vote. We see what North Carolina is doing, how they are just, every which way they can. I even think I read some report this week that they want to have one place, I guess, in the whole state where you can have early voting. And then, um, remember, they had a case that went to the Supreme Court, and I think the Supreme Court uh, overturned it or something, which basically says they can't do what they were trying to do. So, you know, it's just really sad that we even have to have a Voting Rights Act, but we saw after, after the Supreme Court gutted it what, what they did. Supreme Court gutted the Fourth Amendment. Remember, about uh, my three months back, Sonia Sotomayor, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, writes this dissent where she says, basically, she says, basically, black people and Latinos going to bear the brunt of this, you know, and how the application of it, because it's pretty much gutted. And and as you can see, black people, I'm going to see 
much is happening with Latinos, but you can see black people, we are very the front of this now. Police coming to your car, you can talk about rights and stuff. They don't care about that. You know, they will bust car windows. They would do what they feel that they have to do to, to uh, escalate a situation to effect an, an arrest or a death, whichever would come first. So, and then, you know, now and now we see the uptick in white women, whereas back historically, not that white women weren't doing anything, but, but you see now the Amy Schumer that, ugh, anyway, the fat Lena Dunham, you know, um, and there are others. You know, we remember the case last year was about the pool party. And this black girl, the police officer, running down the street like he in some movie, and the little black girl that was arrested. So we're seeing things going on. And, I mean, I don't like to say wake up, but I'm like, we have to focus because none of the systems now are working for black people. None of them. You know, police are out here, like I say, they, there's no more Fourth Amendment rights, and we are catching pure hell because of that. So I saw that, and you know, like you said, you, you know, older, older <laughs> white women, I don't care whether they're old or young, just white women, you know, now, you know, stepping up very boldly and being emboldened in their foolishness. So I did, I saw that, and I just wanted to say that, and I'll meet myself and thank you. Right on. Uh, I did see we had people predictably wait till the last minute to dial in and true to my word as i said we are not doing any extra uh when people hang out and lollygag uh when we're here and they don't want to talk or are on the line with a hand up and don't want to talk and then decide that they want to wait till we get to the last three minutes now i got whatever together that i want to say no uh get yourself together i think we've been on for a long enough time people should know the pattern uh, in terms of the program and how long they were on, I think you have a significant amount of time if you need you know, a moment to collect your thoughts or figure out how you want to articulate yourself. You've had adequate time, and we're not hanging out extra. Uh, I will give a documentary in addition if people are looking to get more details on Attica, uh, Ghosts of Attica, that is available online. You should check that out. They have uh, a lot of archival footage uh, of what went down. Uh, might be good to check out if folks want to do a little uh, extra research. Uh, I had one other uh, comment, but I will just save it for later. Oh, my other comment. Uh, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, uh, she mentioned, I was going back and listened to the archives and she mentioned a lot of different books. One of the books that she mentioned was Marcus Redeker, uh, who is a white male, suspected race soldier. Uh, his book, The Slave Ship, uh, where she said she just, uh, just got it. I think this was like 2011. The book hadn't been out that long at that point. But she said she just got it. She recommended people read that. Uh, Mr. Redeker should be coming on the program in a few weeks if you want to get a copy of The Slave Ship and prepare. I had asked him to come on the program earlier this summer, but he was occupied. Uh, and I went back, touched base again, and we should be doing it in, I think, like two weeks, uh, right kind of towards the end of September. He'll be on the broadcast. Interestingly enough, uh, he divulged that he was one of the consultants on the Roots remake. He's That's like his area of expertise, since he's not ignorant about racism. He is studying the enslavement of black people. He's written quite a few books on it, but he divulged that, that he, I think I might have mentioned uh, Roots to him when I was uh, making my request for him to come on the program, but he divulged that as well. So folks that were interested in that, might want to prepare, should be uh, interesting to speak with a white person on this uh, subject matter. 
we'll be looking forward to that later in the summer. And that came to me as I was asking him to come on the program. I think that also has greatly informed why I'm so disinterested in seeing any more slave films uh, about black bondage. It's not that I don't spend time researching this subject. I don't need to go and see uh, Quentin Tarantino or 12 Years a Slave or any of these other uh, racist cinema adaptations. Uh, there's quite a bit of literature out there, and I do make an effort to read quite a bit. I think this will be our fifth program this year, focusing on a book that is specifically about the enslavement of black people. I think that also is probably a grand contributor to why I'm not going to see Nate Parker's work, and I'm not going to watch The New Roots or any of the other slave flicks that they have coming down the boat. There are a plenty. If you look online, you'll see that whites are just going to keep cramming those in and keep cramming those in and keep cramming those in. I think that in and of itself is an act of racism, white supremacy, reminding us of what our status is, not trying to correct the problem. Uh, with that, we should be here. Uh, you'll just have to check Black Talk Radio uh, Network page to get the uh, exact dates times uh, for the coming broadcasts. Again, we are restored on TuneIn, so you can check there. Uh, you can hit us on Twitter at Until Justice. If you get confused along the way, feel free. Drop an email, untiljustice at gmail.com. I will give a tip. If you have a guest suggestion, someone that you would like on the program, it would be best to send it to the Gmail account. People, can, people do and can send me messages on Facebook, but it is more difficult for me to keep things organized there. It's much easier uh, for me to organize and keep track of things uh, on Gmail it can be, uh, things can just get lost because people send enough messages on Facebook and for me it can just be difficult to kind of keep up with things there, so if it's a guest suggestion or something that is important or response or whatever the case is, send it to the Gmail account, that would be best, until justice at gmail.com, guest suggestion uh, if you can't find an archive if you just, general information you would like to share, gripe, complaint whatever it is, until justice at gmail.com with that thank you for tuning in I hope the broadcast has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy as I state consistently one of the worst combinations in the known universe whites alcohol keep that in mind at all times and do not take it lightly Uh, certainly if you're going to be in a vehicle driver, passenger, even as a pedestrian, you do not want to be under the influence. Sobriety would be best under conditions of racism, white supremacy. You do not want to be inebriated on the day that you happen to bump into Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw, race soldier, badge or no, as was stated earlier in the broadcast, racists, Whites can ruin your life, end your life in a matter of minutes, if not seconds, and they demonstrate that daily, worldwide. Sobriety would be best, and if you're going to be in a vehicle, buckle up every time. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's it, creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. 
A victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.